joining us for episode 39 of geezers of gear today's podcast is brought to you by elation professional elation's razor 760 is the next generation led wash beam and effect light ideal for any size stage featured on this year's super bowl halftime show and currently out on tour with rob thomas not only is the razor bright with pixel control of 760 watt RGBW LEDs. It also houses a super wide 5 to 77 degree zoom and continuous 360 degree pan and tilt. Its feature set is capped off by Elation's innovative spark LED technology. Two watt white LEDs placed inside the lens that create a unique sparkle effect, giving designers a fresh and innovative way to create interest and depth on stage. See the Razor 760 and all Elation products at elationlighting.com. Well, hey, hello, and welcome to Geezers of Gear, episode 39. Nine. That's and, right. And uh, this is Marcel and Henry, of course, co-geezers on the show. And this morning, for our intro, we actually have a gentleman named Matthias Henricks, who is the product manager for Elation Professional. Good morning, Matthias. I guess it's afternoon where you are. Hi there, yeah. Good good afternoon here from our European headquarters in Kerkrade, Holland, which is in the middle of nowhere. Nice. Nobody nice. would ever find it on a map in Europe. Well, but close to Germany, so that makes me feel right at home. Unless you were looking for Elation's headquarters, you probably wouldn't be looking for that place on a map either, would you? Probably not. No. <laughs> what, what else is famous from, from that city? I'm afraid nothing. nothing. <laughs> Actually, one one thing, it's exactly on the border to Germany. So it's, there's a road in the middle that's like you can stand on the road and you have one foot in Holland and oh, that's one foot in Germany. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's like literally one side of the street is Dutch and you park there and you can go shopping in Germany and fuel your car in Holland, depending what has a better price. Yeah. So I guess it is famous for that. Yeah. Uh, Napoleon's fault. He put the line right to the middle here. <laughs> well, and I'm sure Elation is there because it's an easy place to do business with the rest of Europe. Um, probably. Yeah, it's very central. Like you know, Belgium, France, Germany, really, right. really quickly. It's right on the border here. Right. Our actually, uh, our European office, Gear Source Europe, is based out of Netherlands as well, but it's for. Just for simplification of accounting and and things, uh, you know, as you probably are well aware, it's very, very difficult and complicated for an American company to do business in Europe with the EU and VAT. It's very, very complicated and it's cost us so much money to just, you know, get open there. So we looked for the easiest solution and it seemed to be Netherlands. And then we've learned since that it probably wasn't. But uh, anyway, we are legally based in Netherlands, so 
Um, so I, well, I'm, the Europeans, we love our paperwork. Yeah, for sure. That's true. VAT, Germans. VAT is the biggest disaster I've ever seen from a, <laughs> you know, the U.S. tax code is unbelievably complicated, but VAT is just ridiculous. You know, to try and do business under the VAT rules is just so complicated for no apparent reason. But so anyways, somewhere. Somewhere better embedded in the VAT tax code is the formula for nuclear fusion. So, <laughs> but nobody's found it yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, I appreciate you taking the time to come on with us today because uh, you know we've been talking with Eric a lot about some of the new products that are coming out, the Proteus and the the um, specifically the Razor, uh, the Dart. We talked about a little bit with him, which I actually was able to see last night. Uh, I saw Kiss last night, and I guess there's a lot of darts on oh, that cool. show. So, um, but the Razor 760 is kind of what we want to get you talking about. But first, I actually want to get a, a, a little bit of information on your journey because of course I and most many people probably remember you as having been in a very similar role in another company in uh, the automated lighting world being Martin professional and so how did that transition come about and and um, you know how has the journey been so far and you know elation obviously is a is a fantastic company with some great leadership and i'm a huge fan of eric loader and and we're good friends so um tell us a little bit about your journey sure um well as you can tell by the terrible accent i'm a german yes. native I recently became an american ah, congratulations dual citizenship did you May. did you just jump yeah, over well, the border, or did you uh, like marry an American, or did you apply a long I'm time like ago? Married. Oh, okay. The, the 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 short part of the story is actually the um, Niels Torsen of Flying Pig Systems of when course. they started their deal with High End, they decided to do a class called the Automated Lighting Academy, which was actually held in John Weisman's office in uh, Van Nuys in yes. the old High End place there. Yeah, yeah, I remember it well. And I, uh, I was a student in Berlin. Um, I was taught by, was actually envisioned by Niels and Arnold Cerami. Uh, in the end, it was Michael Nevitt who actually taught it. Yes. And Nevitt and Loda have been friends for a long time. I happened to run into a beautiful woman in my time in LA. And it turned out um, that I married her and I moved to the States. I'm like, decided if I want to move to Berlin. Uh, and I figured, well, why not try my luck in Hollywood? Sounded yeah. kind of good. So I yeah. packed up my stuff and put my CD collection on a pallet, and off I went. <laughs> um, well, you've got did priorities. Did freelance work first. I had priorities. The yeah. CDs had to come with the vinyl. Yeah. Actually, had to come with. That was probably the most weight I ever shipped. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so I did some freelance work in LA, and uh, at the time, uh, Eric was at Martin in the, in Florida. You know, Martin had a Pretty nice office with Frank Montero uh, in the L.A. area. Yeah. And I started to help them with some fixture demos, and they started to get into the console stuff, and I helped them with some like demos and did some some work for them, and that turned out into a you know, full-time gig. So actually, Eric was my first. I was you know hired by him at Martin. So the story goes really long back that way. Yeah. Now, he, he moved on eventually, uh, as Martin became more corporate, you know, we decided to, to go a different direction and started to focus on elation. 
I stayed in there through different roles in the U.S., ended up working then for the headquarters in uh, Aarhus, and I was part of the product management team Yes, there for six, seven years almost. Eventually, Harman got into the mix. A lot of stuff changed, and Samsung acquired Harman. More stuff changed, and um, yeah, eventually, there was no space for me left there, and yeah. uh, I had to leave that company. And I called Eric and said, you know, how about it? You know, we always stayed in touch throughout the years and a really good cordial uh, and personal relationship. And uh, he said, yeah, no, this, actually, this may actually really, really work. And we're expanding a lot and we need more focus on the product side. And, you know, there's so many great things we can do and we just need help. Yeah. And it was kind of, a, you know, phenomenal. It was a really good... Uh, Opportunity, and you've been there a couple of years now, right? A, uh, about a year and a half now. So okay. I started in January of last year. Yeah, I had the amazing amount of two weeks off between my jobs. Uh, <laughs> well, went you straight from one to the next. You don't want to get lazy, you know. You don't want to sit around and get lazy. For no, time. I was actually pretty bored for two weeks. Yeah, I was myself. I get it. Because well, you go in this gigs, you go like at full speed, like all the time, that's and then this industry, pulled yeah. out of it is tough. Yeah, for sure. So tell us about the uh, tell us about the Razer Razer Seven Hundred and Sixty because that's what we're here to talk about. I know it's a, yeah. a relatively new fixture. Um, I know it's already been out on a couple of uh, pretty big things that we actually mentioned in the uh, in the sort of, uh, promo for elation in the beginning here. Um, the Super Bowl halftime show obviously was a huge sort of a debut for it, I guess. Um, but it's out with Rob Thomas now as well, right? Correct. Yeah. So how's that going? Yeah. But, so the Razer, is, um, elation had a, a product that was a bit smaller called the Razer 360, which was fairly successful. Um, it uses uh, three lenses, and I kind of really fell in love with the concept of these really large, powerful lenses. Um, but you know, output-wise, it was just not quite there for, for a lot of the shows that I envisioned it for. Right. So we started basically um, adapting it from... Three went to a seven times sixty. That's where the name comes from. Uh, seven times sixty watt LEDs. Right. Uh, RGBWs, quite powerful in their own right. Uh, because the lenses are so big, you can actually do a lot of fun things on the on the surface itself. So we sort of spun up this three sixty into a larger product, um, and then I felt it's just you know there's a lot of LED products that are similar out there. Yeah. Um, there's only so many ways you can spin the surface of LEDs with right, the lens. Right. So um, we started looking at an opportunity to make the picture itself part of the design and make it more interesting, and that's how we ended up with the, the Sparkle idea. So um, I was embedding white dots. Yep. So I was looking at the spec this morning. So that fixture mm -hmm. is eight thousand lumens, right? Um, Correct. So is this part of an entire range now? So, you know, obviously 8,000 lumens fits a certain marketplace, but, you know, obviously 16,000 lumens is better. So, you know, in the development cycle, are you going to continue to kind of upscale? Sort of like, you know, Mac 250 or Mac Krypton and then, you know, 
Mac 575, or you understand what I'm saying, the, the relationship between yeah, the 550 lamps and the 575s and the 1200s, right? Yeah, we, we, we talked, you know, we looked at the different sizes we could do based on this concept. Mm-hmm. Um, so but there's any potential for it to grow. I think for, for now, we're quite happy with the way it's positioned. You know, there's a lot of products in that size in the market. That's so probably out of all these products, that's probably the most successful size. Yeah, uh, you know, you have things like the Aura X4. I mean, that's a the kind of the, the more small. popular fixtures in there. The form factor is small. You know, we added a 360 movement to it, so the, we feel it's actually you know quite quite a compelling size that can cover a lot. Um, so yeah, well, there is some ideas to maybe do a bigger one eventually because some designers just want a larger surface to look at. Right. Um, but the sparkle effect not, you were about to you, you were about to you were about to mention that sparkle effect. So what's what's the purpose? What's the use? Like what is that? Uh, yeah. Where did it come from, and what's it used for? It came out. This is really one of those ideas that grew on a napkin. I mean, yeah. It's always like a stereotypical thing, uh, but it, it really was like we just started doodling around and experimenting with some ideas. And um, I always like fixtures that have something else on the surface. I mean, Mac Horror is probably a good example. Yeah. That has like some sort of backlight function. There's other fixtures in the market that uh, do something like this. Um, and I wanted to give the designer basically a second layer that he can play with. Um, it was supposed to be something very visual. It should not affect the performance of the fixture itself. So if you end up lighting a car show or something like this and you don't really care for the little sparkle thing, then it should not affect the performance of the fixture ever. That was very important. It should be something if you can use it, if you want to, it doesn't fit then it should not uh, change anything and negatively impact the, the product. And it's basically, so we looked it's, at different it's, ideas. it's like 12 or 16 or something. How many LEDs? It's actually, every lens is four tiny LEDs, so oh, it's actually okay. 28 in okay. the picture. And they're two watt They're basically positioned. There's two watt white. They're 4,500K, so they work very well in television because it's just like a clean white. It's not too yellow, not too blue. Uh, a lot of strobes are 4,500K. Right. Um, regular xenon strobes, so that's why that temperature was chosen. And there are four small LEDs that are embedded into the lens itself. Like if you would look at the picture in detail, they just sort of sit on the edge. They have a quite diffuse effect on purpose yeah so when i explained that to the optical design it's like wow that's like totally the wrong spot that's never going to work i'm like well that's exactly the point that's not supposed to be efficient it's supposed to be interesting and uh, add visual uh, interest in another layer to the picture that's yeah so when you design when, when you sit down and you design a fixture like this you know you mentioned quite a bit that there's a lot of competing led product on the market so in, in the development cycle of this, do you sit down and you say, okay, we're going to take a price point and build a fixture the most we can to a certain price point? So we want to build things that are different, obviously, that, than what's in the market, but the price fits it. So when you talk about the initial concept of introducing this light, is it built to meet the price point and then all the effects come first? Or do you take all of the effects, get to the price point, and then figure out if you're going to go to market with it or not? How does that work in the development cycle? Um, you tend to be um, that you start from a specific price point because there's just a certain 
cost that, that people are willing to pay for a product like that. And you could have the greatest product if it's, you know, not rentable, then you're never going to be able to sell it much. So cost is usually where this starts. For right. sure. you, you find it a, a position where you want this product in, you look at the competitors on the market, you say we want to be at that point, maybe we want to be a bit lower, maybe we want to be the same but offer more value, you try to, it's like a balancing act. And so do you, you find then yourself... try to find... Go ahead, I'm sorry. Uh, so, so you, you know, basically make basically a big comparison table and just sort of start to evaluate all the different things that are out there and you look, where did they do well, maybe where they didn't do well, or... What feedback have you gotten from designers? So it's a lot of discussions with um, really, really design community. Um, you know, this picture was really envisioned as something that you could, um, you know, put on a camera and start, uh, you know, a shot for like Saturday Night Live with. Like, it's like something that's interesting enough. You start with a pan out, a zoom out of something like this. Right. You know, like people used to do a lot with ZL fives. You know, it was visually interesting enough that it became part of the set. But just so, so I understand that's this kind of what I tried to do. This particular fixture is is like a it's a base wash light. It's an effect like a Sharpie kind of beam effect or like what specific market is it it's filling? Probably an ACL an okay. ACL kind of wash lights. Okay. Um that goes very narrow. Which ended up expanding the zoom train to Go further than like well, you shoot a wash on the wall, you expect a certain field. Yeah. But if you use a wash in the air, you actually it makes sense to make the zoom train actually go past that like nice point and end yeah. up making something that looks great in the air. So which made the picture a bit longer to to accommodate that. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, but zoom's very wide, so it, you know when. Nowadays, people, I think, expect products that are multi-purpose. So yeah. It's very tough to have a product that's just one, one trick pony. Yeah. They tend to be often not so great investments. People get bored with it. Where the fixtures that are successful are you know, something that can, you can use for a tour and a corporate gig, and you can hang it in your church, and they all have you know, applications like all across the different uh, yeah. um, shows and, and events that are there. Yeah. Well, I know that the shows oh. that I've seen this on, I, I didn't see the Rob Thomas show, but I've seen loads of pictures and video of it. And um, mm -hmm. really, really a great looking fixture. But obviously the Super Bowl halftime show, which I've watched several times. And, um, you know, so to me, it looks like Elation has another successful uh, product on their hands, which will become, you know, sort of a staple of a lot of these, these uh, shows that you're working on. But, um, you know, I guess my question is, um, you know, in the design process, like we all know that Elation is a product that's manufactured in your factories overseas. But um, I know that when I was part of Martin, for example, we were very much involved from the U.S. in the design process, the naming process, uh, the marketing uh -huh. Because you needed, if you were going after the, the largest potential market at the time was the American market, and if you were going after the American market, it had to be a product, obviously, that fit the market, but the look, the feel, the branding, the name, all had to be, and it's something that I think Clay Packy to this day still hasn't figured out, that, you know, naming things that in words that you can't even pronounce in the United States 
is probably not the greatest thing. And there's still a lot of Chinese <laughs> companies that do that as well, you know. But um, so how involved are you personally? How involved are is the U.S. office in general when it comes to those, you know, critical parts of not only designing the fixture, but the marketing and branding around it? Yeah, this is 100% us. Like this is, we do not operate on like, hey, let's find a product and, you know, put a sticker on it and give it a fancy box and a name. Like these are, like all these fixtures that we launched are 100% grown uh, on, based on our ideas. Uh, and they, they really are developed to our exact specifications. Yeah. So it's not like, hey, let's find something and, you're not uh, a modify it a little bit. Yeah. No, 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 no. These no. these are unique to us. This is actually in this sparkle effect is something that you know we came up with for us. It's patented for us. Yeah. Um, but this is not something you're gonna find everywhere else. So we really try to do unique products and try to solve people's and sort of designers' problems. We try to solve the rental partners' problem to give them the product that you know that is profitable for them. So we take all this. It's our own marketing, our own developments. Yeah. It's really our product. How, I, how long was the how long was the development cycle on on the seven sixty? So you know, technology moves fast. Was it a year, eight months? What what do you typically see on product like this? Um, this was actually a bit not so typical because uh, it went really fast. Like we sort of put it on paper in March, April, and we showed the first picture working at Plaza, which is September. That's incredible. It's actually incredibly fast for something like this. And we showed it in two versions. You know, there's the indoor version. There's also like the Rob Thomas to us, the Proteus Razor 760, where Proteus is our outdoor IP 65 fixture range. Yeah. Um, so we showed it actually in both versions. And then, uh, started shipping, like actually finished and out into the market by January. So I didn't realize Very that. Very fast, the... I think. Are you copying a lot, not copying, but um, duplicating a lot of your own fixtures between their regular line and the Proteus line? So you're making a non-IP version and an IP version, or was that just a fluke on we the tried. Razor? No, we've actually done that several times now. Oh, so we've done it on that. the Razor, um, and the Proteus Razor has probably been really the runaway hit because it's just like lightweight and IP rated. So people just go for that and say, well, it's a sealed fixture. It'll stay nice and clean. I can use it indoors, outdoors. So we've actually seen really, really good uptake on that Proteus version. Oh, interesting. Um, and like the Rob Thomas does, like a mixture of indoor, outdoor shows. And they're like, oh, we'll just go all outdoor fixtures. Very interesting. And so we don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Uh, we did the same with Monet. They did a variant of that in Proteus, which is in the Proteus Maximus. Uh, we did. We have a fixture called Smarty, which is like a small hybrid, and there's a Proteus Smarty. So we have like three fixtures that exist now, almost identical in an indoor and an outdoor variant. Wow, well, that's that's uh, that's a cool concept. Yeah, absolutely. Like do you do you see? It just moving to indoor outdoor fixtures only to streamline the inventory that you have to hold in a warehouse. Do you just see that eventually going that way? Um, um, if we could, we probably would do that as much as possible. But actually, the weight differences and cost differences are pretty significant. Like on a razor, it isn't. But if you go to like a full, you know, a thousand watt LED moving head, there's quite a difference, especially in weight. You know, you add like thirty some pounds to a fixture. To, all the cooling and metal 
and you know that yes. is so there is may not be the right picture for many applications yeah. oh yeah i don't know if you've listened to the john broderick uh podcast we did last week but one of the things that we asked him was what needs to be invented that hasn't been invented yet and his response was basically wireless completely wireless lighting and you know wireless everything basically where it's powered through the trussing system where it's you know, uh, wireless data, wireless DMX, whatever it is. And, you know, where you're just, there's no cabling, uh, going up to the rig. And, um, so, you know, I can definitely see it go in that direction. And one of the ideas that we just kind of tossed around right on the podcast was having like Tesla batteries built into the, to the metal on the truss. So your, your trussing rig is actually your battery and the trussing is charged before going up in the air and then there's no cabling going to the truss rig. So I don't know. Is it a crazy idea? Maybe. But there you go. There's your next idea. So go go invent that for no, us. No, it's not crazy at all because the, the time to set up shows gets shorter and shorter. You know, yeah. here in Europe, the entire summer is festivals and people yeah. just race from one to the next. And uh, Here too. Uh, no, I and, think the and next wave over... of innovation you will see making it easier for the setups you know maybe you have rfid bluetooth like yep. a lot of it will be actually making the operation of the all of these things quicker operation weight truck pack load times you know setup times these are all of the issues that keep coming up for us we always ask these questions and it's a recurring theme you know that people just want to be able to uh, lighten the load, you know, because it, with all these LED screens and, and the amount of gear that's being put into these rigs, the, the hang requirements are just getting, the building engineering is getting so much more complex and, and, you know, with the, you know, God forbid disasters that have happened occasionally, um, you know, weight is becoming a big issue. Truck packs becoming a big issue. So, yeah. Well, you know, I one thing I will say before we leave you here, because we have to jump on our uh, podcast with Robert Roth, but I think that Elation is making very good moves. I think the fact that they brought you on board a year and a half ago uh, proves their commitment to the, you know, touring and professional lighting market. And um, to me, Elation is certainly one of the main companies to watch over the next 10 years in this business. And uh, we're really excited to have a relationship with the company and looking forward to seeing where it goes. So, Matthias, I would like to thank you very much for joining us today and for coming on and telling us a little bit about sure. the Razor. And, thank you. Uh, you know, launch new products and come on and talk to us about them. And, and uh, we're always happy to talk technology, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, to, just to reiterate what you said there about Elation. I've been just incredibly lucky that I picked this company. I think it's just like it was the timing was perfect. The people are phenomenal to work with. They're really dedicated to this business and to, to the people that work in it. It is, you know, not a number company no. uh, that is just focused on spreadsheets and PowerPoints. We all have a lot of heart in it. And it's just a lot of fun to work with Eric and uh, Toby who run this. So, I've been very fortunate to enjoy this. Fantastic. Well, you have a great day and a great week, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, that was fun talking with Matthias. Sure was. Smart guy, and it's really nice to see him on board with Elation. 
So um, before we get Robert on, I just I wanted to tell you about my little experience last night. So um, I uh, I took a friend who had never been backstage at a show, never met a band uh, to see Kiss last night. And when Doc McGee was on our podcast, he invited me as his guest when they came into town. And I had almost forgotten about it. And I got an email from him about a week ago. You're coming to the show, right? And I went, oh, yeah, 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 I'm coming. So uh, we went and we were treated unbelievably well by the band and by Doc, of course, who got us incredible seats, got us all access passes, of course. And uh, we got to go in and meet the band. But I just wanted to say that, you know, I've seen Kiss, God, 20 times over the last 40 years. <laughs> right. Yep. And I think the first time I saw him was Kiss and Cheap Trick at the Calgary Stampede Corral which must have been in, I'd say, 1976, 77. That's unbelievable going back that far. Wow. Yeah. And, um, and you know, honestly speaking, like I was down on the fact that, okay, it's only two original members. I was down on the fact that, you know, Gene is almost 70 and Paul Stanley 67 and they can't really sound very good and they're not going to move around and you know they're just going to look like silly old men dressed up as Kiss but honestly I was blown away and uh, you know it, Paul jumps around and dances around like he's 25 years old Gene still plays the part that Gene always did they sound really great. I mean, maybe the first song or two were a little rough on vocals where you could tell Paul was still stretching his voice out a bit. But by mid-show, by two songs in, <clears throat> even vocally, they sounded incredible. The lighting rig was beautiful. The sound was great. Uh, the, the stage and set, I thought, were very clean, really, really good. Um, you know, was it the spectacle that some Kiss shows have been? No. But I thought it was so much better and classier, and I enjoyed it more than uh, the last time I saw them, which was probably 15 years ago. Um, so, you know, if, if you're listening to this and you've got an opportunity to go see it, I would recommend you check it out because it's a great show. I think, you know what, the one thing about KISS shows, and, you know, I've been to a pile of rock concerts, that's for sure, but they're always enjoyable. Everybody always has a whip-ass time. You know, yeah. it's almost like a family event because obviously Kiss has been out there since the early 70s now. So you got, you know, 40, shit, 50 years of Kiss now almost, right? Yeah, 50, yeah. Almost 50 years of Kiss. So, you know, generationally now, this is going over like three generations in a family. But, you know, it's amazing. Like I saw them a few years ago in West Palm Beach, probably going back four years ago, maybe something yeah. like that. But everybody at the show, nobody's angry. Everybody's laughing, joking, having a great time. There are no fights. It's just, um, you know, in, in Kiss, you know, the shows, while the lighting is somewhat different or the visuals may be somewhat different, the quality of the artists has always remained. And you know that you're going to get that quality when you go. So it's just a, it's a real enjoyable time. It's like a mini vacation. Well, for our lack of a our seats term. were literally about, I don't know, eight feet from Paul Stanley. And, you know, the guy was like looking right into people's eyes, including ours, and mm -hmm. entertaining you and like communicating with you. And they didn't just seem like a bunch of old guys going through the motions. I mean, they really seemed into it. So it was a lot of fun. And uh, it's is it still Brian Hartley, who's the L LD for Kiss? I don't even know. 
I'm not 100% sure. I know he was, and that's one of the questions I was going to ask. Did you see yeah. Brian last night or no, not? I, mean, I don't know who the board op is on that. I usually go straight to front of house. I didn't. You know, I didn't want to bother anybody. I didn't want to be a pest. I just wanted to go to my seats, have a beer, watch the show, and get out of there, you know? I know mean, you were the tourist last night. That's I was a bit were. of a tourist. So, um, yeah. Uh, anyways, it, it was fun. So, um, you got anything quick you want to cover? Because I know yeah. we got to get on with Roth. Just uh, two quick things really quickly. Uh, you know, we keep on talking about, you know, truck pack and everything else. So Tomcat brought out a product. It's pre-rig truss. It's called zigzag truss. So it's standard pre-rig size, but it's hinged. And when you lower it in, you kind of stack it or zigzag it on top of each other and then roll it straight into the oh, truck. That's interesting. So, so it was kind of pretty cool. I'd like to see actually like a YouTube video or something like that on how that actually flies in. I thought that was really, really cool. Yeah. And then, of course, going in the Wayback Machine, and I, every time I see little articles like this, I, I kind of always get a chuckle how new artists generationally try to recreate the classic recordings of old artists. So there's this uh, up-and-coming country western slash bluegrass artist called Lauren, I'm going to see if I get her last name right, Ali, Ali, Elena, Ali, Ina, something like that, right? <laughs> so she... Uh, you know, I seen I saw the video on Rolling Stone online, but uh, she went and redid in a bluegrass way "Cheap Tricks Surrender," right, um, in the same bathroom that Robin Zander, I think, right, recorded recorded it in. Oh wow! Um, yeah, so you know, you can hear the reverberation in the room. You can there's no digital effects on it, so it's kind of interesting to listen to the vocals of how somebody works in a in a room, a tile room with no processing on that right so that's kind of cool the song itself when she covered it is not necessarily my taste because you know how can you outdo you know cheap trick live at budokan right no but so. just the uh just you know the i don't know if you call it you know in intuition or just the idea that someone would go through the trouble to figure out which bathroom the song was i didn't even know that the vocals were recorded in a bathroom i guess i missed that article but um but yeah, to go find the same bathroom and to record your, the song in the same bathroom, I mean, that's really paying some respect to the to the song itself and to the artist who did it, I think, too. So that's, yeah, it's kind that's of a interesting. Cool story. I'm going to have to look that yeah, up. I mean, you see the, you know, the, the band members are standing. I can see the, the, the pictures of it right now. The band members are standing out in the hallway playing and recording the song and the music video at the same time. So you can actually see that. And then the lead singer, this... Uh, Aliana, right? Yeah. She is uh, in the bathroom on a that's cool, you know, on a microphone with a pop screen on it, and that's it, you know. That's so really it was cool. pretty cool. Let's uh, go ahead and get Robert on here so that uh, so that we can hear some of his great stories. I'm looking forward to this one. Me too. Hey, man. Robert Roth, Marcel, and Henry, and Marcel. hello, Marcel <laughs> and Henry. Hello, where are you? Uh oh, you can't hear us. You can't hear us. Uh-oh. Oh, he hung I up heard the it. phone crunch. But I wonder if Joe Rogan goes through this stuff. Probably not. He has a call setter upper. Maybe the third time is a charm? I think it oh, sounds very fantastic. Clear. Okay, great. Awesome. Well, hello, Robert. Hey, fellas. And welcome to Geezers of Gear, episode number 39. 39. 39. <laughs> you are 39. 
You haven't been 39 <laughs> I'm a lot more than 39, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, you, you haven't been 39 in a couple of years, I guess. So yeah, I, at least one or two. <laughs> so I got to tell you a funny story. So last night I was a pedestrian at a KISS show. and uh, I saw the Facebook posting. Go on. Oh, my God. Well, I actually, like, I've never seen this before where a meet and greet is a line of, like, 200 people. And they shuffle you into this sort of framed picture and then shuffle you out really quickly. Like you've got about a second and a half to stand there and get your picture taken and then you're gone, right? Yeah, right. uh, But but I was with a friend who had never done it before and was just really blown away by the whole experience, getting to stand there with the band and stuff. And so, um, yeah, it was funny. I was a pedestrian, you know, with really great seats and all access passes, but I didn't even go to front of house or anything. I I just uh, sat there, watched the show and left. It was really, really you fun. You know, that's funny. I, I have a great, you know, I have a pile of Kiss stories, of course, from my yes. years of working with them, but, and, uh, and many more years of seeing them, you know, as a fellow in the industry. But one year they were at the amphitheater here and my daughters were out and my eldest daughter's like 4'11", right? Yeah. And I just missed a picture of her and Jean who was like in costume and you know at that point he's double her height right yeah or not literally but it sure looked that way you know and i tried to get the the phone out and snap it but the moment passed oh no (laughs) that's funny no it was a great show i had great fun and and uh you know i just don't do it as much as i used to when i worked for manufacturers and you were out at shows all the time you know bugging guys like robert roth to you know, get more business put or gear to, on here. Yeah. Put <laughs> gear shows, on your yeah. shows, please. Yeah. You know, you, I think we all, I think the three of us may suffer from that because, you know, I got to get out and see the kiss guys. I tried. Uh, and of course I was out of town doing some other gig when they came through here in Atlanta. Right. right yeah. Um, but, and I just went to see Opie and the stones and it was one of those things where my girlfriend had never seen the stones and I'm like, what? Yeah. You know? So, <laughs> yeah. So I, so I sent Opie a note, and of course he was very gracious as always, you know. That's and cool. we went down to New Orleans right when that fake hurricane came through, the news media created hurricane or whatever. Right. right. And literally Mick gets on stage, and they delayed the show by a day, but we're in the Superdome. And I was like, let's see, outdoors in Jacksonville um, or indoors in air conditioning. Hello, this is a no-brainer, right? Yeah. So Mick gets on stage, and he <clears throat> Of course, this is like the third time they've been trying to get there, right? And he goes, you know, I think this is the only show in my career that is an indoor show that's been postponed by rain. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. But- it was probably the phrase that paid that night, but I mean, they were stupendous, and I'm sure Kiss are just killing it like always, you know? So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it really was just so cool. It was such a great event, and... I really enjoyed it. I mean, maybe, you know, not going to as many events as I used to or as many shows as I used to has made me less jaded. And I just really enjoyed the experience, you know, sitting at my seats with a beer and and cheering. And I recorded a couple songs, you know, videos and posted them online and stuff upside down. I might add, I have no idea how I did that. <laughs> but uh, that's great. Yeah. Facebook flipped. Yeah, them you know, it's me. funny. I am. I'm still out there like 125, 150 days a year at various shows. And, you know, not all of them are concert work at this point, right? Right. But when I'm here at home in Atlanta, it takes like 
something special for me to get up. Like the kids want to go see Drake or, you know, there's somebody I want to go talk to. But a lot of the time what I'll do in those situations, and I just did this recently, um, is I'll get up and I'll go down there in the afternoon and I'll do my stuff and I'll get out of there before the show. Yeah. Because I'm just like, I won't say I'm jaded. I'll just say I'm highly experienced at it. Yeah. No, I get it. Trust me. I get it completely. Like I, I was dreading driving into the general parking lot <laughs> last oh, night. Yeah, I was like, listen. oh my God, I got to park here and pay 20 bucks. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, but once again, another one of my dear friends who's of course incredibly gracious. When, when Metallica came through here doing the outdoor stuff about what was this two and a half years ago, right? Yeah. Tony DiCiaccio, who's a dear friend of mine, was actually out on the road with him. Yeah. And we had lunch, and he was like, you come? And I said, I'd love to come. I said, is there anything we can do about parking? And this is at the new SunTrust Baseball Park. And literally, there's no backstage parking. They did not build it for concerts, right? right. And so he goes, and I'm driving him out there to drop him off before I go. And he goes, I'll take care of you. And literally, it's me his wife and her sister or something that she was visited was in visiting yeah. and the band vehicles in the backstage parking lot other than lugs trucks. Yeah. And I was like, man, hooked up. This, this yeah. was better than the backstage. Oh, pass, hell you know? yeah. Hell when yeah. it was time to go, I could just blaze out there and get in the car and get out. You know? Well, I remember one time I got field passes for the Super Bowl. And I was more impressed by the fact that I had parking passes that allowed me to park right at the building, you know, like right there, you know. So, oh, yeah, the, dude, that's awesome. I mean, yeah. I've done three or four Super Bowl halftimes yeah. with Alan Branton and all, you know. Yeah. And I remember that as soon as, you know, and these were all post 9-11, right? Yeah. I remember so clearly, like, just going oh my gosh, we've got four hours worth of hurdles to jump through. Just We're already credentialed. Yeah. We have multiple hours of hurdles to get through on game day just to get inside the place, it's right? It's crazy, yeah. Oh, you know. Yeah, it's crazy. So, Robert, I, we're going we're gonna to make you go through because some of, I think, our listeners who, you know, just so you know, and I think you've heard a few of our podcasts, but... So, I have, and they're very impressive. Thank you. They're, you guys are doing a great job. Well, you know? we appreciate it very much because, as you know, it's it's mostly for fun. We certainly don't make any money doing this, but <laughs> um, it, and it really has turned into a super cool sort of repository of great industry stories and and just interesting industry people that you know, unfortunately, one day won't be with us any longer, and. So it's just, it's really been a cool experience for us. And it's something that we didn't expect it to turn into. But what I was going to say is many of our listeners will know your story. Um, many of our listeners <clears throat> don't know your story. And so I'm going to ask you, and Henry's going to ask you some questions that you might roll your eyes and go, didn't I just answer that one in a exactly. live design article? <laughs> no, it's article cool. Last I, month. I figured we were going to start at the beginning, which was a really, really long time ago. Yeah. You know? And, you know, feel free to condense things or, or leave things out well, as you, you guys wish. Feel but... free to expand on something yeah, that yeah, I may yeah. gloss over. I yeah, mean, yeah. I just did something with Brad Schiller 
And at the end of it, he goes, well, what about this, 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 and this? And I went, oh, yeah, I forgot all about it. Well, I didn't, <laughs> well, it happens, I didn't man. mean to minimize this, <laughs> yeah, right? It happens. We do forget some things. You know, it's, so it's, it's so much of it is what you guys are interested in. I mean, I've lived the story. And yeah. at various points, I've retold parts of it. But while you're living it, you don't really, you know. You know what I'm going to say. While you're living yeah. it, you're not really paying that much no, attention. No, no, you don't think level, much you know? about, hey, this is a great story for the future. You know, although I'm exactly. going through some things in my life right now that we'd have to have a separate conversation about that, you know, I just feel like writing a book on every one of these situations because they're all like... <laughs> and you know what's funny about that, yeah. and this is a different conversation too, is that from my late mother forward, I have been being pounded on to write a book for so many years because my perspective is so different than even just a designer, right? Yeah, yeah I agree. Um, I completely agree. And and so I, I, at one point, like I said, let's have a separate conversation about that because I've been trying to find a way to do that, and I can't do it alone. There's yeah. no way I can do this alone. You know? No, no, you need uh, you, and need you somebody... guys might be a great vehicle. Maybe we could partner up and do something on, you know. Hell yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's do it for sure. So, and, you know, by the way, I had a similar conversation with Wiseman, who, um, when we first started talking about him coming on and doing the podcast, he said, you know, but there's a couple of rules. One is we need to talk about addiction. And I was totally cool with that because it's something that's, uh, that I haven't personally experienced, but near and dear, lots of friends, um, you know, who have gone through it and some who are not with us any longer. But, um, his other thing was, you know, that. I, I've been bothered for a long time to write a book and, you know, this is sort of my dress rehearsal for it. So I want this to sort of kind of become that platform for me. And we've talked so much since that time about just some of the ideas that are floating around in his head and thoughts. And, you know, guys like you and John Wiseman have stories that 99.9% .9 of the planet will never experience in their lifetime. And those need to be shared. Yeah, and, and here's, uh, I'll tell you this about all that. I started out tour, um, in about 2006 or seven or eight thinking about doing this, right? Yeah. And the, the challenge always was, was that a lot of the stories that I have, I don't really want to name names. Yeah. I don't really want to tell the, 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 because there are NDAs. There's lots of different things. And there's also kind of the Omerta that exists inside our industry, right? Well, and some so people like, will get hurt. Like some people have moved on in life and they don't want stories like that being told about them. Well, the other thing know, is, is that, I, so I, I worked and worked and worked and started down a road with somebody and came up with kind of a way to fictionalize it. So I have a whole <laughs> framework here. It was just the execution fell flat and it's you know it's it's not dead it's just fallow i just so need to water this and find it, some new farmers right it's, you know? it's a children's book loosely related or loosely based on groupies no i'm thinking no it's nothing like that at all <laughs> i'm, I'm thinking it's like uh, actually i was told that i had minimized too much of the sex drugs and part of the thing you know right yeah of which yeah. there certainly is no shortage but right no. of course <laughs> yeah it is it is a oh staple in the industry <laughs> So, the beginning. Take us back. Okay, so, to, to kind of frame this, I was this not particularly healthy, bookish kind of nerdy guy in secondary school, right? 
And we, my family started out in New York. We moved to South Florida, Carl Gables. And then we moved to Athens, Georgia. And, um, you know, just a little background on the family. My mother's father was an architect. My father's father was a cartoonist and illustrator back in the days before photography. Worked for Daniel Webster, among other people. And my dad was an engineer, okay? So I have this kind of arc that if you think about what I've done, it kind of all falls into place that there's kind of an art gene. And my mom was pretty smart with numbers. The art gene, the engineering and, you know, technical part of it, and then, of course, ultimately, you know, when it got to be more about running Excel sheets than AutoCAD files, there was that, right? Right. So here I am. I'm in junior high school. I'm in Athens, Georgia. And, you know, it's the late 60s, and I'm really into the music scene. And the university there had free concerts for the students. Well, I mean, we'd get, in, we'd get driven down there, and I'd go see some shows. And there were projection light shows, you know, like the oil and water and psychedelic slides and all that. And I was like, that's kind of cool. I think I could do better than that. So I tell my, say that to my father, and he goes, so why don't you? Well, I'm like, you know, in eighth grade or something, 14 years old or 13 years old, something, I don't know. And I go to my junior high school principal or assistant principal, and I borrow some projectors, and I knew some guys in a band that were playing a little place. And so I do it the first night, and they pass the hat, and I get, you know, like 10 or 11 bucks in change, and my mom and I are sitting there counting the money, and I'm going, well, this is cool. I think I'm going to keep doing this. So I put together the Aurora Light Show, right? And so this went on through the junior high years. I uh, did a bunch of jobs at the university union there. And one of my favorite anecdotal stories on the business side was that, you know, look, this is 19, now we're 1969, you know, 1970, uh, 71 maybe. And the phone rings at the house. And, of course, this is long before there were fax machines or cell phones or anything, right? My dad answers the phone. And it's 738 o'clock at night. And um, eventually I hear him go, well, emergency, do you have a name? <laughs> it's for you, Rob. That's funny. <laughs> so that phrase has stuck with me for years. That's funny. I've actually used it a couple of times in yeah. other places. You know. So, Robert, emergency. question, question yeah. for you at this point. Um, you know, obviously there was a lot of art that went into uh, the oil shows, to tell you the truth. They were clock face shows, right? And there were people that were noted in the late 60s and the, the 70s for being able being masters of this so where'd you learn yeah it from? joshua you... among others right sure so where'd you learn it from how'd you, how'd you learn how to make well, I, on you a know face? it's weird I, I i looked i I, you, I looked at a bunch of stuff i read my edmund scientific company catalogs a bunch uh, I, I you know i'd gone to a couple of feature films you know uh, whatever was released back then, up through and including Woodstock, which I don't recall having much of that at. And um, then, you know, just pictures, still pictures. You know, there were just there was great inspiration back then, and it was just kind of like you know, I started experimenting, and a lot of it was physics, like you take, um, you know, mylar and stress it and put it through polarizing filters that counter-rotated. And I just kind of built all this stuff and you know, a workshop in my parents' house, you know. Um, I literally once built an Edmund Scientific Company uh, f overhead projector from a kit, you know. Um, it was that kind of stuff. It was just that basic, you know. That's awesome. And 
and you know, so and my dad used to drive me down and help me climb like three stories of stairs to the balcony in a place called Memorial Hall in Athens, right? And he'd come back at two o'clock in the morning or one or whatever it was and help me load out. I, I didn't even have a driver's license, okay? You know, that's where. <laughs> so that's how it gets started. So. In 1972, he got transferred. He worked for the envir- what was the, became the Environmental Protection Agency. He got transferred from a lab in Athens to Atlanta, Georgia. And of course, I'd been working on and off with a bunch of Atlanta bands, and you know, so I'm kind of casting around and I'm doing some lighting for some of these bands with literally now 150 watt floodlights in wooden boxes with gel taped over. Right. Jesus put up on the on the PA stacks on either side, right? And I was still kind of, I was a big record guy. I mean, to this day, I got two and a half thousand vinyl albums, okay? And so I, I'm looking around for stereo. I'm a, you know, a hi-fi guy, right? And I'm looking for like, well, what kind of speakers do I want after these acoustic research speakers? And I'm like, man, I need some JBLs. Because back then, the JBL 4311 control monitor was what a lot of this stuff was mixed on. So I'm like, what better frame of reference to listen to all this stuff that's my thing, you know? Right. So I do the, re- do the research. I'm 17. I'm headed to buy these monitors. It's kind of like a, a cold November afternoon. And I get out to this place near Six Flags which was, you know, 40 miles from where we lived even then in Atlanta, right? Which is, you know, now 100 miles across at least in terms of the metro area. And lo and behold, on at this little audio company where I'm getting ready to order these things with the money I've, pen, you know, saved a dollar and ten dollars at a time with, you know, there's this pile of used fucking theatrical lighting gear sitting there. Fresnels, some quartz Lecos, you know, and a little scrimmer dimmer pack, and I say to the owner of the company, this will show you how naive I was, like, well, how much is that stuff? And it was magically the same amount of money as my studio monitors. <laughs> so I went to buy studio monitors. I came home with a bunch of theatrical lighting gear. Wow. Um, and at that point, I went, right, I'm going to figure this out. And this is in the days, literally, at concerts of pipe trees. I remember going and seeing, like, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and Humble Pie, and it was a bunch of 750-watt Lecos on pipe trees, okay? Yeah. Uh, but I'd also seen, by this point, or it was, uh, yes, I'd also seen, yeah, I'd also seen the band, yes, met Michael Tate, met Roy Clare, met Gene Clare. Once again, I'm 15 years old or something, right? Yeah. And Mike Tate had this really cool air tower thing with these, quad boxes of par heads where there were like 16 pars and four quad boxes and he had little ropes and the whole thing was on double yokes and he was able to focus the air tower lights by running it up and pushing the ropes around right yeah i don't think a lot of people know that tate was a lighting guy first right like he he, oh yeah he had a lighting company didn't he yeah, Tate Towers. Yeah, but yeah. Before Tate Towers, it was it was just uh, it was just it was uh, maybe it was Tate Towers. Yeah, it was. Right. But I mean, he he was one of the first guys I ever saw build a truss system, and that truss system was so cool. And this was like for Tales of Topographic Oceans or something. I must be all of seventeen by now, or maybe sixteen. I don't remember. Uh, you'd have to. We'd have to go back and timeline it. 
But this truss system was on a pair of tri-mast air towers, like G, uh, personnel lifts, like Genie, or upright scaffolds, personnel lifts. Right. And he cantilevered the truss up behind them and cantilevered two arms forward that had side light. And it was just brilliant because the whole thing was on two lifts. But it's all ground support at this point. Yeah. And about the same time, I, I, I got lucky enough to or went and bought tickets and saw something like Tull, uh, where, you know, they're starting to actually hang rigs. And it was, this, this stuff was just amazing, okay? Right. You know, rigging from the ceiling. I mean, we're talking, you know, we're talking, like I said, very early 70s at the latest. Right. So at that point, but, uh, Robert, so at that point, um, are you working on the crew? Are you loading in this gear? So, you know, you're, you're meeting pretty much some icons in the industry at this point. So they're coming and touring through your town, I'm assuming, right? And you're going... Right. Right. Well, you know, check. I mean, how are you hanging out with these guys? It was first off, it was such a different time then. Okay, let's just start there. And um, I was a determined kid. And when it when I met Mike Tate, I literally had bought a ticket to the show and hung out after the show, and he was still sitting at the light board afterwards. And that's when I met him. And it wasn't long after, and Roy and Gene were on the road with Yes. Okay. Wow. I mean. You know, this is like back when they would be in, there wasn't even semis on that show. It was big 24-foot diesel trucks, right? You know, what you'd think of as a giant bobtail at this point in life, right? Yeah. And so, wow, here's a seminal moment for you, right? So Pink Floyd is coming through town, and at this point, I already had this uh, theatrical gear, and I was... I'm skipping. We'll go back to it if you're interested. I ended up working for a bar band with all this gear because I decided I was going to like figure it all out, and you know I was going to get, get in the concert lighting business, but I needed to get my chops kind of honed and understand what it was. And I'm reading all kinds of books and reading catalogs on gear and reading photometrics and just kind of absorbing all this. I used to sit in my bed at night in high school and you know, turn a light on and look at gel, look at my hand through gel books, right? I mean, getting a hold of a gel book at that point was a big deal, you know? Um, And so Dark Side of the Moon's coming through town, and they're playing at a place that's now part of a a university and no longer an auditorium, but it's an old auditorium, about a 5,000-seat war-era auditorium called the Municipal Auditorium. Well, I was like... Got up at like 7.30 or so in the morning, 7 o'clock, took one of my parents' cars downtown and parked nearby and walked up, and lo and behold, there is the semi, one semi. And there's a bunch of roadies standing behind the semi. And I just kind of walked up and started pushing boxes and started looking around, and I just hung out all day. Slowly but surely, the show got built, and I was on stage looking at all this stuff. and, And, you know, that night, I just kind of made myself small and stu- stuck in a corner of some of a vom somewhere and watched the That's fucking hilarious. Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon tour. You just made that. yourself part of the crew. Yeah, I just made myself part of the whole thing. You know, security back then, I mean, let's face it, you know, we're we're talk- this is 1972, okay? Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, uh and so I end up going to work for this bar band, right? And they were kind of a prog rock, you know, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, not so much, maybe Yes, and some other bands like that. And they had a, they had a following, and they were they were allegedly going somewhere. And they 
And so I'm doing everything from bar mitzvahs in a Marriott hotel ballroom to little bars to big bars, right? And, you know, you kind of get sucked into this. And I was on my way to college, but uh, I got injured in a lighting accident, believe it or not. And this is 1973 now. I'm 18 years old. At a place called Finocchio's House of Rock in Atlanta, which, by the way, some guys who I still run across to this day and was very fortunate at one point in my career to work with Leonard Skinner were a bar band there, okay? I mean, drinking ages 18. Get the idea? That's you right. Know? Yeah. And so the this bar band who will, you know, who never got anywhere, but they were on this track, and eventually we end up getting an in to maybe get showcased with our original music to make it, you know? And um, so this in involved a series of interactions between leader of the band and people he knew who ended up working for Three Dog Night, and they had broken up, and there was this kind of woodshed project going on. And so one day it was like, okay, we're going to California, pack the truck, you know? I'm like, okay, sure. Were you a company I'm, now, though? No, no, I'm still, still a guy working company. for this band, oh, okay. okay? Okay. This is 1974. Okay. We're getting to where the company is. Oh, are. okay. This is this is this is how it all. This is the next the next arc is how this all happened, right? So right. we go out to California and I'm being the lighting guy and helping support the band and I'm living on 20 bucks a week in a furnished apartment in LA, right? So I'm picking <laughs> up extra work with, you know, SIR and you know, I walk into a rehearsal room in SIR and there's Led Zeppelin with Robert Plant having a broken foot or a broken leg while they're rehearsing for whatever record that was. And there's Skinner rehearsing there. Now, you know, a released recording band that's on their way, right? Yeah. Um, and so this bar band, we literally rehearsed in the same space that they put the Runaways together in. But for better or for worse, things aren't really working out for our great music, right? For the band's great music and my lighting uh, tagged along with it. So we eventually they decide to exit California. And we, we, we would go play in the Midwest. So I did a lot of time in trucks driving all the way to Chicago, you know, three in the cab of a rider truck, you know. Yikes. Um, it was thrilling. Yeah, saw, yeah it sounds like saw, it. Saw a lot of cornfields in the summer, yeah. you know. 12, 18 hours through the smelling cow dung, you know. Yeah, glamorous um, though, right? Really glamorous. Yep, absolutely glamorous. Yeah. And it was really good learning how to make hamburger helper and, you know, boiling <laughs> bags and all the rest of it. Yeah. Sleeping on the floor of the band house, playing some club, you know, where the lights went out and the rats came out and started eating the garbage, you know. Yeah, yeah. So they decide to come home, and now it's November of 75. I've had my 20th birthday at the Rainbow Bar and Grill, believe it or not. Wow. Um, so... Um, and I remember going back and forth during that time and seeing this sign outside the whiskey. It said, Van Halen Cycle Sluts. I'm like, what the hell is that? Yeah. Little did we know. Yeah, no kidding, so, huh? Yeah. Obviously, the Cycle Sluts didn't get somewhere, but the brothers did, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so we come back to this, this, you know, it's Brother Bate, triumphant homecoming to Atlanta, Georgia. There's only one thing missing. An audience. Yeah. However, in the audience, 
there was a man who had started a PA company. He comes up to me on a band break and he goes, listen, Robert, I got this PA company going. You know, I'm starting to get calls for lights. Concert production is going to become something really big. You should think about getting out of this band and, you know, starting your own lighting company or something, right? And um, almost simultaneously, my father says to me one rainy evening, sitting in the family Volkswagen outside the shopping mall, you know, look, this band thing, I'm not so sure this is working for you. Maybe you should, like, go back to go go take the college track now or start your own company or something. So it, there it was, you know, twice in a week I'm like so on about 5 grand in the basement in a basement room in my parents' house. I started putting this lighting company together, right? Yeah. And off it went. And so the early gigs, you know, once again, the scene in Atlanta was pretty active. Uh, different than it is now, but you know, there's a lot. Of, there's a there were two or three arcs all working simultaneously. One was there was this, some of the southern rockers, there were some of the country guys, and there was also a thriving R&B music scene because the first national concert promoter that existed, a company called Taurus Productions, was based there. Uh-huh. So there was a comp- a guy. By- in front of me by the name of Red Wheeler. He'd been doing Goose Creek Symphony and Dr. Uh, Hook in the Medicine show. And he was a sound lights, you know, conglomerate kind of guy, right? Yeah. Doing, he was doing the Isley Brothers. And I started doing his overflow work with this PA guy uh, and the PA company, as well as another PA guy who had ends with, among other things, the Atlanta rhythm section. So all of a sudden, I got this going, and then the legendary concert promoter, now deceased, Alex Cooley, of course, became my friend and all of the people around him, because I'm the guy who's going to every show I can go to to try and push and meet anybody I can meet, you know, tireless, self-promoting, 200 shows a year kind of thing. Hustling. And Alex gave me, Alex and... um, a dear friend of mine and mentor, Joel Katz, legendary entertainment lawyer, got me hooked up when I started doing Willie Nelson in 1976, on top wow. of all the rest of this. Wow. That's big. Now, had he so broke at that three point arcs yet? Of, had, excuse I me? Mean, was he big yet? Had Willie broke at that point yet? Was he really huge? Oh, yeah. The Willie, Willie, we did Willie and Waylon. I mean, we were out forever. And <laughs> one of my, my an ex-partner, who unfortunately was one of those casualties of the drug situation, right? Yeah. Um, he was on the road with it. I was busy doing ARS and some of the other stuff, right? Um, and so between these three arcs of business, all of a sudden I got two, three little lighting systems. And, you know, we, I, in 10 months I moved from the basement of my parents' house to my first warehouse, you know? And was that called and- R.A. Roth at the time? It was it, the company was originally called R. A. Roth and Associates because at the time there was Tom Fields and Associates, C Factor, McManus. All these companies were, in many respects, you know, built around a personality. You yeah. know, yeah. Um, and those were some of the earliest exposure I saw to this industry, right? Yeah. And I saw some of this exposure by once again going and just. Wandering into the old Omni or into the Fox before yeah. I was 
even I even had a lighting company and started started a network. I at the time, of course, you're not thinking about this as networking net, networking and sales. You're just trying to somehow break into something that fascinates you. Yeah. You know. Hey, Robert, I'd, I mean, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you because David Milley told me I better ask you. But where the hell did the square park ends come from? Oh, this is easy. Um, so. It was born of three things. The first were those boxes I talked about about 10 minutes ago with Michael Tate. Yeah. The second was, came straight out of that visit to the dark side of the moon thing. And there are photographs. I've seen some photographs of this. These guys coming out of England with par heads, they weren't, they, they, Altman wasn't exporting over there. They built square housings for these things. And just as a, as an electrical note for those who are interested in this, in the UK, they didn't have 240 volt PARs, PAR 64s. So you had to series two of them to make it work on a, on a UK dimmer. But, you know, Pink Floyd had like 48 of these PARs on, Basically, three trees, one giant one with a counter-rotating mirror ball with a smoke behind it, you know? Yeah. And then a couple of side trees. So between that and being basically broke, right, and working for this bar band, I started building these square parkings in hotel rooms, literally. Go to the hardware store, buy a pop riveter and some tin snips and you know, cans of spray paint. And this is how I spent my days when we were on, I was on the road with a bar band. That's you know, hilarious. I built 13 of them or something wow. for that show. Yeah. And it just kind of kept going from there. And then when, you know, once again, this was one of those decisions where um, maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't. When the thing started getting bigger, I thought about going to commercially available park hands. And someone else who was integral in the company had a series of different uh, connections, some of which involved how the trussing all got built, which was through race car builders. Uh, and he had a connection to somebody who was building some kind of and I'm talking about in the in the late 70s now, right? Yeah. Automated mowers. And they had the forerunner of CAD CAM machines that were using paper tape. And we literally got the paper tapes made and started punching these things out on, on, on an automated basis. Really? Um, and we'd still have to do final assembly, but... Oh yeah, that's uh, that's kind of where it all came from. So, how many of those things did you own at at the top? Ultimately, I would bet you we had several thousand of them. Jesus, okay, oh. couple three, couple thousand, you know, because I mean we were doing somewhere between fifteen hundred and two thousand, let's just say, because it, there were by this point I had seven or eight lighting rigs on the road simultaneously. Yeah, you know. Um, but of course the whole thing was thinly capitalized and I had my hands in a whole lot of different stuff, but just to put this in perspective, timeline wise, right? So this is just going, going, going. And, uh, by eight, 1980, I'd been working for a band called the Bar Case, whose opening act was some guys named Cool in the Gang, right? Yeah. And, uh, by 81, and this is just one arc, understand there's the country arc going, there's the southern rock arc, rock, uh, rock arc going, too, and I'll talk about that in a second. But, you know, this guy Al Heyman showed up and started promoting nationally as the next guy beyond Taurus Productions. And, like, I'm there with Cool and the Gang when Celebration is released, right? Wow. 
That um, had to be big. And that year, they had the Gap Band opening for them. And then I get a phone call from a guy named Paul Dexter I'd never heard of. And he's working for Rick James. It's 1981, okay? Hmm. Wow, that's and good. That's good. Wow. We, <laughs> we did that deal, and Heyman had something to do with it. The agency, uh, who, who was the, the agency for all these acts, had something to do with it. Paul had something to do with it. And I'm learning at this point that these decisions aren't necessarily solo decisions, right? Yeah. And uh, that was, we went out and toured behind street songs for, I don't know, eight months or something. And I had some great stories about Rick. I mean, oh my gosh. Yeah, I and can I did only two more Rick James. Oh, yeah, man. It was just like, and I mean, back in that point, now, Marcel, you got a record background I, I remember when they released street songs it was double platinum in 10 days yeah. this is 1981 this is not this is before this is coming up running up on michael jackson's big runs and all that right yeah but simultaneously i'm working for molly hatchet 38 special atlanta rhythm section skinner didn't come till much later till the 90s that's a different story but yeah. um and then there's the country guys. And by 1981 or 82, a promoter in Alabama had called us up, and at this point Chapman's around, and said, listen, you guys need to go see this guy, Hank Jr. He, I'll introduce you to everybody. He needs help. And lo and behold, we go down to Tuscaloosa, and there's a whole side story to this, which I'll tell some other time, but... I walked away from there with uh, the Hank Jr. account, which I did for like 14 years. Jesus, right? that was a good one. That's incredible. Up, up through three ACMs and three CMA awards. And, I, you know, at this point, I'm putting together the lighting, the scenery, all of it, right? Yeah. Um, and things so are going you along okay, right? So, Robert, did you realize that, I mean, basically this is Hank Williams' son and had he broken yeah i knew that, that was but it didn't really mean anything to me however obviously the culture of hank became part of my life you know uh what's great that guy interesting guy you know what's that mean though uh, the culture of hank became part of my life well i mean we were doing every one of his shows and you know those shows were three three and a half hours long um he never you know, I remember one year for Christmas he gave all my guys custom Ruger pistols. Okay, Jesus. awesome. That's and I also remember being asked to have a backdrop done. And of course, Ron, the great Ron Strang was doing all my backdrops at that point. You know, because who else would do them, right? Um, and um, it was this Jim Beam cartoonist thing, and I'm like, really? Of course, I didn't realize how much money Jim Beam was paying Hank to put that thing up in front of the audience. Right, right? of course, yeah. This was this was where the power of merchandising was becoming pretty evident because he was doing <laughs> back then a hundred two hundred grand a night in merchandise, right? Because my truck drivers were selling these things too. Yeah, we're, we're doing the sales. Oh, that's but you hilarious. know, going back to where Broderick was talking about this, you know, back in the late seventies, we were driving or riding in the trucks. I remember doing ARS and we got a Winnebago, you know, it was 77. Yeah. I, I mean, this was a big deal. Yeah. My first tour with a bus was about 77 with Frankie Beverly and Mays, you know? Yeah. Um, but, and I'm jumping around a little bit. I'm sorry. That's all uh, right. That's all right. But so, you know, the whole thing just continued to grow. And, um, so 
as this all went on, you know, we were fighting from being in Atlanta, Georgia. Forget the fact that, you know, I'm kind of an Ivy League set of parentage and, you know, native New Yorker. We were in Atlanta, Georgia, and there was a lot of kind of condescension from the coast, and even to a, to a lesser degree, but some from the New York area, you know? Yeah. And so I'm going, you know, we're doing really well here. And this is before lighting designers were really, or they were just coming in their own, you know, as independent, recognized individuals. So we were doing a lot of design build work. And I'm going, we're doing great work. We're just not doing it for the right level of clientele. We've got to find some way to get further. And I'll also say that the equipment back then, it was not commodified like it is today. you got to realize that back in this point, in the late 70s especially, there was no touring supplier of anything. Yeah. If you wanted a touring dimmer rack, you bought dimmer packs and you built a case around them and you figured it all out and you connectorized it and you made it, right? Yeah. Same thing for all of it. Trusses, you couldn't go to it. There was no Thomas or Tomcat. That, that didn't exist, Yeah. right? So there was, this was as much a fabrication business at the time and an invention business as it was a service business. Yeah, um, I, I read and, something. I read something somewhere in an article about you where um, someone needed strain relief or something for cable, like they needed to run a longer run of cable, and you directed them to a mining uh, supplier or something because in mines they were using longer cable runs and yeah, and electric just, mining machines. They had they had steel made in with the cable, right? And and that uh, just I mean, that seems like a very normal piece of uh, information for someone to carry around, <laughs> you know, not really, exactly. but you know, that's something Henry yeah, well, would come up with. I was the lighting nerd, man. You know, I yeah. was too busy reading catalogs and trying to understand what how to make things happen and do things. You know, yeah, but that's just, and this goes right back really to cool, the whole. Though. Well, thank you. I, yeah. I mean, it just comes back to the whole thing about you know building stuff for truck packs yeah. and truck efficiency and all that and i took a cue straight from the claire brothers early on and i went wait a minute now this is back when the interior of truck bodies were like six inches narrower than they are today right yeah. and i'm going we need to get this stuff to pack better let's build our trusses so they'll literally spin on access on axis inside a truck body so yeah. instead of you know, building them to some standard foot and inches length, we built them to fit in the truck, right? Yeah. And we layered all the boxes and threw plywood down and all this. You know, we weren't the only people doing some of this. I mean, Bobby C was doing, uh, he was he was truck efficient, you know. There were other people out there doing it. But you know, this, this allowed us to do a lot of different things that, were a qualitative sales edge because it wasn't a series of service companies. It was a series of individuals who were trying to 
um, innovate yeah. where there wasn't an industry yet. Well, yeah, really, it seemed like people had a real sort of MacGyver approach, you know, and everybody did it differently. Like, that's what was so cool. Like, you talk about Paul Dexter. I remember him telling us he made park hands out of uh, pineapple, pineapple cans. Yep. And I believe that. Sure. And, and Absolutely. you were making square park hands. And, you know, why not? Who says they have to be round? And well, uh, I'll never forget seeing somebody using steel park hands that hung one at a time with C clamps on folding truss on, once again, tri air towers. And I'm going, oh, look at all the extra weight. And this is inefficient. And, and you know, eventually the six lamp bar got you know, invented by Eric Pierce and company, right? Although the guys from LSD weren't far behind, and we had our own version of it, right? Uh, ours was more Unistrut-based because we were using all those little Unistrut toys that you can buy off the shelf, you yeah, know? Yeah, But we got into all kinds of pretty customized electrical work to do all of that big par, big 80s kind of... ACL work that, you know, some people love and some people hate, but certainly signified a whole generational arc of that kind of work, you know? Yeah. So are we getting uh, near the point now where you added, uh, I think it was called Source Point Design? You had a, yeah, you added sure a had design, design right, firm yeah. in? And yeah. What, I mean, so... What was behind that? Why did you suddenly okay, need so, to have your own design yeah. business? To go back to where, uh, you know, just not not five minutes ago... I'm going, we've got to do something to differentiate ourselves and get to the next level. What is that something? And Chapman at the time was a close confidant uh, of mine, and we were already working for the Canadian Power Rock Trio Triumph, okay? Yeah. And so coming home uh, from a creative meeting in, like, I want to say... <sighs> 81. I'd have to go back and see exactly when it was, but my, maybe 82. Thriller had been released, right? And I'm, I'm looking at Chapman, and we're sitting in the back of an Eastern Airlines plane in a smoking session because he smoked, and that, that'll tell you how long ago it was. That's they were so still funny. allowing people to smoke. Yeah, I mean, Eastern you know, Airlines of course, was the still smoking around. section, I, the air yeah. is so different than the non-smoking section in a plane, right? Yeah. <laughs> we're on a tube. <laughs> I think it was yeah, Dice right. who said that. You know, how come I can yeah, only in smoke a in a yeah. few rows? We're in a fucking tube. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's, that's pretty it, funny. Too. That's yeah. it. So I look at Chapman, and of course, you know, we've had a couple of cocktails. It was a successful creative meeting. And I'm like, look, you know, this guy, Michael, and the, he'd already toured behind off the wall. Dave Davidian was a lighting designer. It was pretty impressive. It was big banks of par heads and shit, you know, because back then, once again, moving lights had. Just barely cracked in. We're just barely cracking into the thing, right? More on that in a little while, because obviously you guys got involved yeah. uh, in the later arc of my career. But I'm like, you know, they're all saying he's not going to tour. I don't believe it. I just don't believe this. There's going to be a tour. This is too big, right? And so we started looking at working our network and Chapman's going design, design, design. And I'm going, yeah, let's see what we can do. Well, we have to get, let's start with having a project before we worry about creating a framework, right? Simultaneously, this guy, Steve Kay, who was kind of the business end of things, he was, 
he's been very successful subsequent to all of this. He got into the tech side and was very successful in all kinds of computer stuff. But he was one of the earliest computer geeks I knew. He brought me this program called AutoCAD. And he's going, you know, Robert, you're doing all the drafting, the throughput. You're, I can see what you're being put through. We should look at computer-aided drafting. So this is going on simultaneously. And we're starting to network up to see what we can do about finding our way into the Michael Jackson thing, right? Yeah. And we find contacts who had traction in multiple places, including including the late Ian Knight production designer extraordinaire and a few other people. And we just start exposing people to what we're doing. And lo and behold, two years later, we didn't tell anybody anything. This was like CIA black book work, you know? Um, we found ourselves in a position where there was a tour being mounted, right? And we were thinly capitalized. There was no, if I knew then what I know today, I would have been the vendor too. But, you know, that wasn't it. And, uh, so we got into a position where we landed the design contract for that tour. And... Um, I'll tell you, it was really, really cool because there was so much stuff that was done both logistically and technically as well as, you know, at the time, I mean, you can say what you want about Michael, but the Michael I knew at that time was just so, so impressive and so motivating. The guy had the work ethic of the damned. I mean, we rehearsed that show three full run-throughs a day, six days a week for six weeks, and then we took it to Arrowhead and did it for another week, you know, before we opened. That's cool. I mean, and so... so, But how did you balance having a design firm separate from your lighting company? And as, as (laughs) as you said, you weren't the vendor on it, so now you're spending all this time and energy designing Michael Jackson, which had to be a massive undertaking. I was, I was very thin. I was stretched very thinly, and I probably yeah. had a bigger organization than I could afford in yeah. the, across the whole thing. Um, so, but I'll never forget, you know, I had this crisis of confidence, and my, I was real close to my dad, and I, and I went and had bought him dinner right as this was coming up, and I'm like, look, this is a real departure. What do you think? And he he said the following to me. He says, you know what, Robert? This is a unique place in history. There will never be a project like this again. If you don't do this, you will forever regret it. Go for it. Uh, That's that's an amazing piece of advice. I love it. I really do. Because a lot of fathers would have gone the other direction. You know, it's too dangerous. It's too scary, Robert. Marcel. Yeah. Okay? 28 years old. So let's keep this in mind. I founded a lighting company at 20 in the basement of my parents' house. Eight years later, I'm working for Michael Jackson behind the biggest tour on the planet. Yeah, that's pretty that's cool. That's awesome. That's pretty cool. I mean, it was – and what was cool about it was was that, you know, we worked – and once again, funny story. There's only two moving lights at the time, right? There's very light ones, and there's what Richardson's doing with whatever the pan or whatever stuff was at the time, pan beam or pan spot or whatever, right? Yeah. And the Panabeam, Panaspot stuff was being run on a Klegel Performer 4. Okay. Um, but 
nobody knew we were doing this project, and I'm starting to line up stuff, and I, I'm being brought out to interview vendors and meet people because the the machine behind it, the production manager and a bunch of other people were, you know, obviously, you know, building up the team, right? And so I had been exposed to the Verilite guys, and I called up Verilite, and I was like, look, I got a project. I need, you know, 30, 40 of these things, um, because it was going to be a mainly conventional show. The automated lighting had not gotten, this is back when the Mark 350 16T lamp was the lamp of choice, you know. And, <laughs> With the color temperature issues and the output issues and the life issues of that lamp, you guys know more than I do what that yeah, was like. Yeah, right? brutal. The grenade so, lamp. <laughs> that thing is well, there's that too. Yeah. Um, and so, literally, I'm saying this, and the people or whoever I was talking to in sales at Verilite goes, well, who's the actor? I said, I'm not at liberty to say. Well, we don't have anything available. Oh, okay, thanks. Uh, so I called John Richardson up and I said, Richardson, listen, this is the story. Can you support this? Can you do this? Yes, sir, Robert. Absolutely. No problem. So I gave them the gig. And then, of course, you know what happened when the, when it hit the press that we're doing it, right? Ring, yeah. ring, ring. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. very light. Yeah. We, we, we got lights for you. And I'm like, you know what? Yeah. F you. Yeah. You know? Thanks, but you no guys, thanks. You guys. Thanks, but no Thanks. Maybe you'll remember the next time I make a phone call, you know? Yeah. <laughs> the There's arrogance too, of youth, I guess. Way too many of those stories. Way too yeah. many of those stories. Yeah, I don't think I was unique in that situation, was I? No. I mean, there's. Uh, was it Was it Broderick last week? I mean, very recently we had another similar story with a... Oh, no, it was Howard with Rush. It was. Oh, I believe Howard would have gone through this. Absolutely no Where question. Where they completely blew him off. It wouldn't surprise me if JB had, been gone, had gone through it either, but, you know. Yeah, they completely blew him off. And, uh, you know, you sometimes have to come back and prove it to them that you're a big act, and then they'll give you their time. But, you know, it just doesn't work like that in this business. Well, I mean, people like Howard and JB and I all have long memories, I think, you know? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, I, and I, while I never have uh, – I've known Howard – forever and have great respect with him we didn't really work that much together but john and i certainly did a bunch of work together at various yeah. points and i was a i met him when I, aerosmith came through in 1979 doing an atlanta rhythm section stadium show wow um and, you know uh, and we developed a friendship starting then you know That's long so before cool. he started with metallica back in the aerosmith and i don't know if, if in the podcast he mentioned ted nugent but for years he also was doing, doing Nugent, you know? Yeah. In between Aerosmith. Tours, yeah, we talked you know? about it a little bit. Yep. You know, I, yeah. I, I actually, remember all that really. I read a quote from you right around, I think this time, like right around, because, you know, it's remarkable to me that your first big act as a designer, as a design firm, was Michael Jackson. You know, you didn't really start small there, right? So, well, no, well, I mean, we've been doing a bunch of design, but the first formalization. Of yeah, it yeah, Michael, that's what right? I mean. But you made a quote that said, and you can tell me if I get it wrong, but you said, as is so often the case, you're hired for your capabilities. You're hired not for your capabilities, but for your accomplishments. Correct. And I, I love and the that accomplishments quote. at the time were, you know, stylistically. There was a band called Mother's Finest. I don't know if you if you know who they are. They're still around, right? No, I don't. They know. were a rock and roll funk band from Atlanta who was so far ahead of their time. 
And I used to do shows, and I was experimenting with the whole ACL wall of light thing. And I was doing shows at the Fox Theater on New Year's Eve with them, right? And so they, there were labs everywhere, and people had seen photographs of this stuff, and the stuff we did for Triumph was the same kind of stuff, right? And that's how that, those accomplishments on that level was what was translated into Michael Jackson and his brother's victory tour. So how did they contact you at that point? I'm just kind of curious. Okay, so there's probably some magazine articles out there or, you know, Rolling Stone magazine. No, there weren't. Well, like stuff, I said, but... we contacted them. We were like, look, why don't you, why don't, here's an airplane ticket. Why don't you come be our guest and come see this? Let me show you what we're doing. It was like that. Wow. We literally went out there and and started working with an end in mind without telling everybody what it was. That's really cool. I cool. love that. Um, two years worth of work like that. Really, it was about 17, 18 months, but, you know, I mean, it was still. And we just kept plodding along and but sitting was, down. And did, did you have a bit of a hang? And going, okay. No pun intended, but did you have a bit of a hangover from that? So you come back to your shop after having done Michael Jackson, you know, this massive tour and, you know, did like reality set in that maybe not every show you were working with was going to be that size or did you keep going? Well, after no, shows you know what size? it was? Let me, let me just refocus this for a second because one thing that is important to understand is that for, for reasons, for a complex set of reasons, by the time we got to 1979, I was I was out on tour LD and Mother's Finest in between trying to run a lighting company. I can remember being in Europe then with them. My first time I ever went to Europe, you know, Berlin Wall, the whole thing, right? Yeah. Going down the corridor roads when the Russians were holding East Germany, you know, yeah. uh, into on the way into Berlin. You know, it became clear, and it was it was pointed out to me by somebody who had motivation different than mine, I believe, but that I had a company to run. So while all this was going on, I'd do rehearsals, and I'd do startups, and I did the same thing whether it was hardware or software, but I didn't tour with it. By, by the time I was out of buses and on the planes by 1980 or so, you know? Oh, okay. It was just, uh, you know, there was no way to even, and I didn't, Dude, I, I did as well as I did, meaning it was very successful, but the cost structures weren't necessarily in line with where they should have been right. in some respects. I mean, we still made money, but, yeah, uh, you know, I, I wasn't, it would be, it was Chapman or somebody else who was out on tour, Paul Dexter. You know, I, I, I stopped living in buses and start stopped doing what, you know, people I know still to this day do. I mean, I just, I'm amazed that, you know, there are people who are approaching my age who still spend, you know, eight, ten months a year on a bus. You know, I can't. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 there was no way I could manage everything and stay in that part of it. So I got off the I, I got off the road, even though I was still out, you know, 150 days a year, just like I am today. I'm still out 125, 150 days a year. I'm just not riding around on a bus or on a single project. I'm involved in, you know, multiple, multiple projects all the time. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened. I mean, you know, so, but, but you're back to your question. I mean, it was, it was cool. There was this mix of it. That stuff was going on. The hardware company was still doing a bunch of different stuff and a bunch of different shows. And the software company was, 
you know, meaning design, uh, was cooking along through the contacts we made on Jackson. We ended up coming out of that and landing Madonna's Virgin Tour, you know. Um, and I was very involved in that piece of it and with her until it got started. And then I just slipped off after opening night, you know. Yeah. Um, Interesting. But, but, I mean... How'd it the, was. Uh, how did the Skinner relationship start? Well, the Skinner relationship started when they were in bars, and I got to know them, right? Um, but where the business of it started was uh, af- long after the plane crash. And like I said, I knew all those guys and and the and the ladies too, you know, back to dirt when we were all you know barely out of being teenagers, but. Uh, my friend Charlie Briscoe managed them for a while, and he was the original manager for the Outlaws. And at some point, Charlie, who's with Red Light today and is very successful, in one iteration, he was a promoter with a guy named Wallace Barr in the, in the Atlanta scene. And, and Charlie had been a friend of mine because I'm, I'm working for Hatchet and the Outlaws are, and Hatchet did some co-billing together, right? And, um, you know, Charlie and I were together somewhere and i'm like hey let me how about let me let me do skinner and he goes let's talk about it and um so that was in the early 90s uh if not maybe even a bit before then i think that hold on i can tell you yeah let's call it 92 um was when uh, i started working for those guys and at that point you know alan's gone um Ronnie's obviously gone, but I knew Johnny from the Johnny Van Zant band, right? Wow. Um, and so there was an arc where I did work with those guys on and off for through R.A. Roth and PRG and even a little bit into Christy Lights, you know? Wow. Um, wow. That's cool. Where, you know, once again, it's, you know, it's those connections, and so much of this has to do with personal contact and being out there. I can't even yeah. tell you, you know, I mean, I was asked recently in a different arc, well, what would you tell people to do? And I'd say, be out there and be be visible to your clients. I yeah. mean, Well, I can say this, and, you know, not to pump your head up at all, but... Um, I don't know many people who work harder and are there more for their clients. Like, you know, I know there's a lot of people who do what you do, who when shit hits the fan, they're hard to get a hold of. That ain't you. You know, you're, you're right there in the line of fire all the time. You're one of the hardest working guys. I mean, people can say whatever they want about Robert Roth, but you're not going to get rid of him. <laughs> you know, the guy is I'm a, a polarizing guy. You know, you, you either really, it, it, it works or it doesn't, you know, right. and I make no apologies for That's that. That's every you successful know? person, though. And whether you're a successful athlete or a successful businessman or a successful, you know, account exec in this industry, you're going to be polarizing. You're either going to be loved or hated by most people, right? Yeah, being being wishy-washy on that doesn't work for me. And I mean, no. uh, you know, uh, to this day, I'm still on planes about 90 aircraft rides a year. I'm in the field 125 to 150, 60 days a year, you know? Yeah. And I, it's just, you know, it's just 
what the customer deserves. And you know, a fireman, Marcel, doesn't run away from the fire. A fireman runs right. to the fire. Yeah. Into it. Well, <laughs> on, the, and, on that note, though, like last night, I noticed um, that, you know, Doc McGee still walks out with Kiss. You know, he walked yep. them. He walked them through the hallways of backstage and and out onto the stage. And you know, they showed video on the screens of Doc McGee walking the band out and and leading the band out. And I thought, hey, that's really cool. A guy, you know, I mean, first of all, he travels with them everywhere. But you know, even beyond that, he actually is the guy who leads them through the hallways out onto the stage. Very cool. You know, I, I just, I Absolutely, love, no question. And Doc I is a dear that. friend of mine since forever. I'm, I met Doc when he was managing Pat Travers. Yeah. You yeah know, they were probably. opening for Molly Hatchet. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, I saw him last uh, night. I love Doc. Yeah, he's a he's, good dude. He's, he's the quintessential uh, old school artist manager still out there doing that. You know, he and Mensch and Irving. And I mean, I can tell you in my Eagles arc, and you were there with me some uh, at various points when we were in Russia together and hell everything, yeah. right? Yeah. And yeah. Irving was there every night, wasn't he? Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. That's Irving Azoff, by God. No, no, you know? I know. I know. It's an incredible, incredible story. I actually want to talk about that Russia thing because that was fun. But we're still in, uh, uh, we're still in R.A. Ross. So I know, you know, uh, to fast forward a little bit, I mean, certainly right. not that long after my relationship started with you because I only dealt with R.A. Roth for a few years myself. And was that high end or Martin or what was it? Both. I, remember. I think that was sort of my transition between the two uh, at some yep. point. Yep. And I remember Henry from high end for sure. Yeah. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Yep. So, um, you know, obviously I think you got what happened is your company grew and like me and like a lot of others like us who are entrepreneurs or artists or people who know a lot about something, but don't necessarily like you're probably not passionate about numbers and, and accounting. I'm not passionate. Today about I am, numbers. but I wasn't then for sure. Well, I am okay. more so today than I have been in my past, but I'm still not. And you can't force yourself to be that guy if that's not who you are. And, and I believe me, I've read every book that tells you you have to, but, you know, I've always believed that do what you do, do it really well, and then surround yourself with really great people. And I, I couldn't agree more on that, yeah, on that front. But, no. you know, when things are flying really fast and stuff's happening and it looks like business is going really well, sometimes it takes those problems a while to bubble to the surface. And I know you had a trucking company and you had a design company and a lighting company and everything appeared to be going incredibly well, but... You know, it it became a little problematic, I think, at some point, right? Oh, you know, it, it became a lot problematic. And, you know, to be clear, I, I got to a point where I hated business administration with a passion, right? Yeah. And I never, we were thinly capitalized. I never had a good financial partner. And I also had no financial education, right? Yeah. I've got one now. Most of it was OJT. Yeah. But, you know, it got to a point also where... To build a par rig to go do Triumph versus to build a moving light rig to go do whomever it was in yeah. the early 90s, right? Very different. Different capital requirements on a scale of magnitude of four or five to one, right? Yeah. So uh, where this ended up was, yes, there were problems. I was pretty stressed about a bunch of it. 
the trucking thing was clearly a mistake in that it was one thing too many, and we saw well for service and poorly for profit. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you were just I trying knew, to take care of your clients, right? With the yeah, the other thing. thing was control. You know, it was all take care of the clients, do control. And once again, the industry was at a point of evolution where, uh, you know, the PRG guys came along, and I, you can say, I can, you, everybody has, a, everybody who knows Jerry Harris has got stories if they've interacted with him. But I can say this about him: he had two or three things that I have incredible respect for, which was one, having the vision to see that it, there was an industry ripe for rolling up, just like S. Silliman and SFX rolled up all the promoters, and then it turned into what is today Live Nation through a couple of yeah. you know, iterations. Yeah. Harris also had the balls to go get the money to initially do all that, right? Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, on a, on a particularly annoying day in my life, I'm sitting here, and I'm reading a trade regular's performance or something, and there's an article about how PRG is going to use cinema services to get in the touring business. And I'm already doing a lot of my crosshire through the Orlando side of Vanco, right, who had yeah. just been sucked up by PRG. Right. And I'm like, well, this is interesting. That's not going to work. So I picked up the phone and I went, listen, uh, to somebody down at Vanco. It was either Marty or Jeff, you know. And I'm like, look, um, this is a bad idea. However, I got a good idea, <laughs> and maybe you can connect me with somebody. And over the course of a year or so, you know, I got connected and we put a deal together and I sold the company to PRG in 97, you know. So, Robert, uh, just, well. just just going back to 92 to 97, I mean, you hit a point where, I mean, you had incredibly explosive growth. I mean, you had the wrestling thing. I mean, you had the Rob Zombie tours. You had, I mean, you had so many shows out. And yeah, I guess, and the whole wrestling thing is its own arc we could talk about for a while, but I mean... You know, that was the outgrowth of a phone call from Gary Carnes of Verilite. And I was put in a meeting with a guy by the name of Dave Crockett, whose father, Jim Crockett, sure, uh, had Jim. started WCW in the Carolinas. And, you know, his their story, and they, this wasn't that far, far beyond what I'm about to tell you, it wasn't that far in the past. You know, they became the biggest thing on the Superstation Channel 17 for Turner, Ted Turner. Yep. And to show you how small this is, I know one of Turner's daughters well, and of course I'd met Ted over the years, right? Um, but so Turner said to the Crockett, said, listen, listen, you guys have a choice. I'm either going to buy your company or I'm going to start a competitive company and that'll be the end of you on the Superstation. So he sold. And Carnes said to me, you need to meet this Dave, guy, Dave Crockett. He needs some solutions in lighting. And I went down there and had a meeting, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm three or four meetings, six months from doing something. Like a week later, the phone rings, and it's like, have a lighting rig designed and in this little tiny building in Atlanta uh, on Thursday. And I'm like, huh? <laughs> That's what started that arc. But I mean, so, but at that point though, Robert, I mean, you know, you're talking about being thinly capitalized. Now you sort of have more business pouring in the front door then you can handle manpower-wise, that you can handle capitalization-wise. Is that correct? I mean, that's really and, sort yeah, of, in a way, kind of choked manpower, out a right? Manpower-wise, you know, all of it. I was just like, and once again, without that financial partner, there was like, 
there weren't a lot of solutions in the capital was so the so the solution was to was to you know reinvent oneself and i i would say that one thing i've been very lucky or successful at is i've been able to reinvent myself at least half a dozen times in this business you know um where you're just always looking at well what is whatever you're doing today is going to be obsolesced by what you're going to do tomorrow and you can't hold on to the past you know yeah. how many people have we met that are still holding on to what they did 15 or 20 years ago you know most <laughs> not you guys not no me, d- definitely you know? not i'm i'm i evolve almost daily at this point so you know you have to i mean it's every 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 year the world is so different and the industry's different and the opportunities are different and you know, just the way I feel I about things. I absolutely agree, and I mean, you know, that's part of the key to longevity, in my opinion. So, yeah, you know, to be clear, overstretched would be putting it mildly, you know, right. and it and it just was really starting to not work. But there was a fundamental change. There was a sea change in the business. You guys and the guys at high end um, had, you know, opened a bare. Uh, gotten rid of the, the very light barrier, you know? Now we could actually see, and I don't know how much Broderick touched on the load tour, because I've only listened to a little of his podcast, but I remember seeing that show and going, okay, I have now seen the start of the end of Parkans as the dominant force in rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. Kind of put a bullet um, in. I mean, that 100 or 110 or whatever it was, lights he put on that show, that redefined it for me. Yeah. Yeah. That was such a cool rig. It was a fantastic show. But anyway, uh, I'm sure he's waxed. uh, He has, he has been his usual erudite self about all that. So, um, but yeah, so I, you know, in the 92 to 97 thing, the business was, you know, between the impetus of the design and all the other things and just hard work, there was, more work than we could handle, and so and and we were, you know, ha- having our issues capital-wise and you know overhead-wise and all that. And um, well, you so, hit on a you hit on a very good point though, because for a lighting company in the touring business, going through the '90s became either very very exciting or very challenging, depending on how well capitalized you were. And, you know, really the reality is that undercapitalized companies would cease to exist or companies that didn't have access to big capital would cease to exist because, as you said, you know, 5X became the, you know, difference between putting a PAR rig and putting a moving light rig. And it's even much, much worse now where they have so many lights and it's got to be the latest, greatest. And the video, uh, LED video screens now that are parts of all of these shows. And it just seems like there's no end to what these rigs are going to cost. Well, it's, it, it, it ceased being a small businessman's game. And I think yeah. that was, that's the essential piece I realized. I said, this is no longer a small business person's game. And I have some choices. I can just, like, go out of business. or But I have this staff of people who have been loyal to me. And we had a lot of really smart, really motivated folks who were in most of the aspects of this in, of this company. And I'm like... 
I need to figure out how to transition this and not just completely let them all down, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that's how, that was what, that's how it, it got going. It took a year to put together. And, um, you know, I was one of the early acquisitions of PRG. So by January 97, I am now suddenly not owning a lighting company anymore, and I'm working with PRG, yeah. working, for, working for them, you know? Yeah. Well, and you're helping to lead them into the rock and roll business too, right? Correct. Uh, however, you know, as you both know better than most, I mean, this was an interesting set of challenges. And, you know, they were a company that was growing exponentially due to acquisitions and not really paying attention to what happened after the acquisition in many situations at the time, you know? Yeah. I mean, they've come a long way since then, but, you yeah. know, this was running up to the millennium and you remember that pretty well i'm sure so. yeah well i mean the i think the biggest challenge that i saw in the early days when van cohen cinema services and then production arts and bash and was the standardization and then LSD, of, of course standardization but, yeah. of gear you know the fact that of course that if they got 12 studio colors from one shop and 20 from another shop and 40 from another shop they didn't even know what cabling was on them. They didn't know what cases. Some were quad cases. Some were dual cases. They didn't know, yeah. uh, you know. So Drug pack for touring was a nightmare. Age of lamps, you know. Yeah. Like, I remember that being a huge problem. You'd get 100 lights out of Vegas and 100 lights out of Orlando, and you look at the show and you go, why are some lamps yellow and some are white? What's going on here? And I remember a particular moment when I really saw this come to sort of a head was, um, oh, what's her name? The the big uh, lesbian lady who did the talk show, uh, Rosie O'Donnell. Rosie O'Donnell, Rosie O'Donnell yeah. recorded her show live at uh, Universal. And I don't remember who the designer was, but I just remember standing there with him looking at this rig and he was saying to me, I'll never use this company again. And I said, well, you know, I'm sure they'll figure this out. And, you know, I was there as the high-end rep, and he was complaining so much because of the multiple color temperatures of, of the fixtures. And Hey, know, listen, I, I remember a point when I had the pleasure uh, in one of the initial moments, I had the pleasure of working with Peter Morse. Yeah. And we're doing Barbara, right? And we're in rehearsal, and, you know, you know the stories about her and the light meter and the mirror of and all course, that yeah, stuff, right? Yeah. Maybe so, you should tell it, though. Tell it. Okay, so she is an incredibly smart woman, and Peter is one of the most creative guys I've ever met in my life. There's stuff he does stylistically that I've never seen anybody else do. Uh, I could drill into the technical side of it at some point, but the, 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 the moral, the, the, the outcome of this story was at the end of rehearsal, you know, the stuff was relatively well-matched, and Peter just looks at me and goes, okay, relamp the whole thing, Robert. And I'm like, uh, 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 uh. Because, yeah. of course, the contract didn't have anything. The contract I, <laughs> we signed off on, it was the PRG days, didn't have any clause to get to recover this money, right? Yeah, Jerry, course, I need We'd already been bid down to lamps. a low number. And, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm sitting there in shock, the going, "I'm gonna have to, go, I'm about to go up to spend twenty-five or thirty thousand dollars on studio color bulbs, right?" Yeah, yeah. But that was a reality. Oh that was a real reality. I mean, that that happened. You know? Oh yeah. And that happened like with oh, us yeah. at being sort of the reps from the company. 
you were being compared all the time to Verilite. And, you know, I never get a Verilite rig where the color temperatures don't match. And, you know, they got a very different, uh, you know, first of all, it's coming directly out of their rental stock. It's not passing through the hands of, you know, a lot of times cross rentals too. Like if, if. Well, yeah. And, and I mean, look, Verilite did a very good job until they didn't. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, they were certainly, but of course, they were a very structured price schedule, and they had um, the ability at the time to say, oh, okay, well, if you can't pay this, we can't do the job. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, before we got into a particular, I don't know, 10 or 15 year or however long it was, rat race on margins and all that, which ultimately has turned out to have some interesting um, corollaries. You know, if you don't recover the cost of capital, and I am a numbers guy these days in many respects, um, you know, and you're not paying attention to your costs, well, you're not going to be in business. And we've seen that occur in the last couple, three years, haven't we? Yes, we sure have. In a big way. Yes, we certainly have. Um, so no. tell me what was the, what was the biggest culture shock to you going from being a small entrepreneurial run rock and roll business to being part of a you know what some were calling a Borg or a large enterprise uh, business? Roll what was up, right? what, what was one of the biggest culture shocks to you? Well, one of the biggest culture shocks was you found out really fast who your friends were and who the, who your friends weren't when you stopped signing the checks. Okay. Yeah. That was interesting. Yeah. The next part of it was that, you know, there were there was a lot of before the LSD acquisition. There was a lot of that company that was based in the theater in New York and were or in big corporate events, and they were just unwilling to understand the pace at which rock and roll worked, right? Yeah. And they were unwilling to admit that they didn't know. So there was definitely a clash there. And once Nick and John and and Tim and everybody came on board, obviously for me that became it became that there there were allies in you know both experience and people I'd known and had friendships with, even though we were competitors for a long time. But the pace of acquisition without the standardization and the back room fixing of things like. Let's just talk about how many different motor controllers and different motor pinouts, et cetera, et cetera, there were at one yeah, point, you know. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, And, uh, you know, I'm, I mean, at the end of the day, all of that coupled with, you know, clearly a desire from a finance basis to initially try and IPO it, and then when that didn't work and it got really dicey in there, they started paying attention to trying to clean it all up. Yeah, it was um, the, the the cultural challenges were just so great. But I will say this about all of it, with all respect to both sides of it, both the challenges that I posed to them and they posed to me. I got my Ph.D. in lighting out of that 10, 11 years with those guys. And yeah. I mean, I remember a guy by the name of John Hovis, who some people really didn't like, who served as president there. Yeah, I he was a him. very plain spoken. Did you, do you remember how it was? Of course, yeah. Yeah, I had several meetings. Yeah, he was a plain-spoken Texan, and he's the guy who challenged me to really dig into how I costed all this. And 
that produced a set of things that I learned from and apply today, you know, yeah. in terms of yeah. how to look at the numbers against what you're doing. Well, it's funny, it's really funny you say that because we had that conversation with Tim Brennan. Tim Brennan said for the first however many years, he fought and fought and fought. You know, because he was that entrepreneurial cowboy, you know, we do it our own way kind of guy. And so he fought even things like a CRM system. You know, why should I have to put my information into this CRM system? And then he started to realize this is actually a good thing. You know, giving people visibility to what I'm working on is a good thing. They're not trying to steal my money. They're trying to help me get those deals done and make sure that we've got the inventory and the, the resources, human resources, capital resources to do these jobs at the time that I suggest we're going to be doing it. And so I think that that is a cool point to bring up and, and uh, a cool education for guys like us who are, you know, fly and, by and, the seat. And don't forget, pants. I was around, and you, I'm sure you two remember this, when they switched from hits to, t to developing team and team. rolling out yeah, team. Yeah, yeah. So I was on the front lines as a sales guy um, and a facilitator and a team builder when we were, they were rolling out custom software. And boy, that was exciting. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, they got, they, they kept at it in many respects and got lots of things right. You know? Yeah. Um, so did you ever have an oh shit moment though, where you thought like, really, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have sold my company. I should have stuck at it. I, you know, I think you're making a lot of sense in saying that, you know, it was no longer a, a, a small businessman's game. And so I don't know that there was much. I had a series of oh shit moments, yeah. some of which are not suitable for this broadcast. But right. um, let's just say that it was challenging to be one of the top sales guys in the concert touring and, uh, and uh, television for music end of it. It was challenging to be restricted to that marketplace. I, I, I was an outlier performer, and they were not interested in some respects in that. You yeah, know? yeah. Well, I think you were in a right? you were yeah. in a very difficult position because you were the first guy who had to come in and kind of introduce them in a big, big way to the rock and roll business, and it needed much more of a team. It needed more investment more capital more product more you know just mentality as a company more investment so i think you were in a really really difficult role in the beginning um all and i wouldn't call it impossible but very very challenging you know based on the yeah and the other thing was was that i ended up with a gigantic book of business because of the politics that i played in the work ethic i brought to the work you yeah, know yeah um and so there was this dichotomy that was clear at that point in that, you know, we definitely had a series of interactions that, you know, I don't think anybody was really happy with. Yeah. Um, yeah. But at the time, I'm turning, you know, giant business. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and since there was not one of the things that was missing at the time, and I don't know if they've ever fixed it because I've been out of there since the end of 2007, um, 
was that there was no kind of standard yardstick to measure performance of salespeople, right? Yeah. So everybody had a story about what people were doing in terms of margins, right? And uh, in any case, yeah, it was challenging on a whole bunch of levels. But like I said, I, I wouldn't trade a lot of that experience for in for anything. Well, you, you, know? gained, I mean, you gained an education in, in a lot of things. And, you know. and I gained another set of incredible sets of clients at the time, you know, uh, the, you know, the arguably the leading designers in the world for concert work, almost all of them at yeah. some point or another, you know? Yeah. Well, I remember um, I was, I was with Comar right around that time. And, um, we had a lot of shows out like between Steve Cohen and Peter and, you know, all of Brokaw's guys kind of thing at the time. Yeah, and I was doing all of Brokaw's I know, guys. I know. Right. And you and I were on a lot of these things together and had a lot of fun. I mean, the one, you know, obviously the one really fun trip that we had to Russia, which, you know, was plagued by some problems as well. But um, it was just a, an interesting, unusual, funny, fun trip that, uh, you know, no I'll, I'll remember forever. Every time I see the pictures of, you know, you, me, Brokaw, Nick Jackson, and 10 guys named Cohen, Alex. Joel Young. 10 guys Brokaw's, named Alex uh, are so Departed wife, Sasha. Judy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Barb. You yeah. Know. No, that was it an was, incredible trip. It was a lot of fun. Special it was moments. a lot of hard work. It was very challenging. It was a lot of fun, too. And yeah. I mean, yeah. to be clear, there were a, a tremendous number of moments like that with uh, a whole slew of clients. Uh, there was some magic moments with JB and Metallica during that period of time. Yeah, there, there's just there was just all kind and there was a lot of very challenging moments too because even during that period of time, the pace of innovation that you manufacturer guys were throwing at us and the change from analog to digital, um, it produced a whole lot of technically educating moments. And what I like to say about part of the thing that I think is, you know, my one of my strong points is that I'm, you know, I've sat in the chair of being the guy responsible for how it looks. I've been in the chair of, gee, we got technical problems here. Who can I call? How can I solve these? What can we do to get this fixed, right? Yeah. And then, of course... There's the financial education, good, bad, and indifferent, that I've obtained over the years. And these three sets of these three different toolboxes that I'm able to access produce, you know, hopefully when when it does work for somebody, um, successful work today as a client, uh, you yeah. know, as an account executive. You yeah. Know? So do you feel? I mean, so, so Robert, I mean, do you feel now that you know? Obviously, you made the transition from PRG into Christie Lights. You've been with how long have you been with Christie now? Has it really been since 07, 08? Has it been that long? Uh, I started in January of 08. So I'm wow. closing in me on away when you said 12 that. years. Yeah. That, That's incredible because it seems like yesterday I to me, guessed, right? Like so, four or five years ago, you know, that so, blows me away. 12 so you, years. You, so you yeah, take this yeah. feature set in, and now, I mean, do you have a completely, do you, do you look back upon the Roth days and then the, the PRG days, and do you look back at that and you go, wow, I am so much wiser now. Do you reflect back on that now that you work like in Christie Lights and you have, you? this is more like the completed Robert Roth right now, right? Businessman. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, let's guy. just say that. 
um, the one thing I can say, uh, I can say a lot of very good things about Christie Lights, right? Um, and I can tell you that one of the things that is just so cool about Christie Lights is that since it was grown organically instead of through acquisition, the standardization of the stuff, right, and the procedures, while it is mind-numbing on some levels, once you learn how to navigate it, it's really, really, really powerful, right? And I walked out of PRG where I felt like on many levels I was never part of the inner circle. I never got respect. And I walked into a situation where I had tremendous respect the day I started at Christie Lights. And now, this far down the line, uh, you know, first off, once again, secondly, who would have guessed in 2000, in January of 2008 or December of 2007, that Christie Lights would be where they are today? Yeah. I mean, the company's growth and organization and market imprint is just it's just stupendous. Well, I would have guessed. I would have guessed because, you know, both Henry and I know Huntley very well and just his business fundamentals, um, you know, those missing standards in your early days at PRG were extremely important in Huntley's philosophy. And, you know, I'll never forget the first time Louis Racine walked me through one of the Christie warehouses And it was like an Amazon kind of experience where they only, I think at the time, they had three or four different sizes of cases and everything had to find its way to fit into one of those four cases. And I'm sure that's expanded a bit now, but the idea was standardization of everything. So no matter what shop it came out of, it was exactly the same. One of his great strengths is that he is a systems guy. Yeah. And I remember very clearly having a conversation with him, and I have a great relationship with the guy. I love him to death. And one of the best things about him as, an, as a sidebar is he leaves me alone to do what I do well. Okay, um, I mean, I have to produce, but you know. But I remember him saying to me about standards. He says, "I don't care if you can improve this. Let's just make it the same because we're already this far down the road." You know, and I mean, everything that occurs there. Uh, you know, be it adding a piece of gear to our product line, it goes through a lot of review, as you well, as you two well know. Yeah, right? we won't for sure. And um, you know, the, the standardization and the systemization of that stuff. I, I'll never forget one of the first things I end, ended up doing that was big was just as Bandit was transitioning out of being WWE's vendor and upstaging was transitioning in and I was too new to the company and we didn't we weren't successful in bidding that but I ended up successfully doing uh, a mania right and I'd been at Christie lights maybe I don't, I don't remember if it was in 2009 or 2008 I'd have to look it up but I literally built that show in five different or six different shops drove it all to Houston Texas without a final prep loaded it in, and beat the competitor's time at load, from load-in to system online by three or four days. And it was just like, I looked at my right-hand guy, Bobby, at the time and went, holy shit, look yeah. at what we just pulled off. Yeah. Now, granted, we had people in all these shops, okay? It wasn't like we did this remote control by remote control or by looking at a computer monitor, but it was just an... And 
like 10 days out from load-in, they were having weight issues in the building, and they had to move all the flown power and dimmer locations by like, I don't know, 150 feet per, per dimmer barge. And that meant I needed another 200, 150 foot, 144 foot pieces of Sokapex. I called the guy who was the show manager and said, listen, I need another 200, 144s. What are we going to do about this? He goes, hang on a minute. He goes, I got them all in Orlando. So we added another truck. We loaded it with all that cable, and bang, we had it. That's it was cool. just stunning, right? Yeah, that's cool. And that's important. I mean, that's what you need, right? Oh, yeah. And I mean, you know, I'm going to the new Las Vegas facility on Monday. Uh, once again, I'm in the field on Sunday with um, a show, and then on Monday I'm in Vegas uh, at a different show, and I'm going to go by and see the new facility, and I, I can't wait to see what has been wrought in 165,000 square feet of Christie Warehouse, you yeah, know? Yeah, that's crazy, huh? That's crazy. Oh, yeah. I mean, but, yeah, I, I would tell you that it's incredibly it's incredibly rewarding to be me at this point. I'm, You know, yeah. I'm in a great place, man. It's cool. It's good I for mean, you. Well, and as is, uh, you know, Wiseman at PRG, you know, PRG have since obviously bought other companies, grown a tremendous amount, and learned how to do things properly. And, you know, I talk to John about it all the time. He's very happy with where he's at right now and what he's doing. There was a time when being an, an entrepreneur cowboy made a lot of sense to him and to you. And now is not that time. It's hard to compete with companies the size of Christie and PRG and now Four Wall, who I'm sure they'll buy a touring company at some point. And well, they kind of did when they bought Hafer and those guys at, at uh, Atomic or whatever you want to call it. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're, he's he he and Looney and those guys, and of course, you know, I have history with both, with all of them. Yeah. Um, that goes way back. They're doing they're doing well, but I'll say this about all of it. You know, um, I'm just the tip of the spear with Christie Lights. I have an incredible support network, some of whom are effectively dedicated to me, uh, and some of whom are just pieces of the Christie Lights network um, that I can call on. And believe me, I mean, listen, I got a phone call at 8 o'clock last night on a, on a load-in in Vegas, and the guy goes, shit, Robert, we got everything we needed, but the chain, we forgot to ask you for the chain motors. <laughs> I'm driving out to your shop now. Oops. Can you fix this? And we have a short, the, first the text comes in. I'm sitting here watching the news. It's 8 o'clock. I've taped it. I'm getting ready to make dinner, you know. And and I'm like, hmm. So let me call the operations manager in Vegas whose cell phone number's in my phone. And I'm like, hey, Troy, listen, I hate to do this to you. Can you give me 10 minutes before you leave? I know it's 10 till 5, but we got a situation to go. Sure, Robert, no problem. And literally, another couple of phone conversations, we had a solution. Somebody wrote, somebody left their dinner table in Toronto, wrote an order. The, the system did the stuff, and within an hour, they had what they needed to solve a problem that they had created. I mean, sure, there's going to be a bill associated, but, dude. That's awesome. That's incredible. You know, yeah. it didn't, it, it, that's, a, that's a question of making the relationships. One thing I learned at PRG the hard way was that instead of trying to create Robert's vision of it, maybe you should just buy into other people's visions of it and see if it'll work, you know? And 
inside of Christie lights, you know, the systems are powerful, and you just have to know how and when to work outside the lines if you need to, right? Yeah. And that's been a, a great education, and it's been very successful for me. Yeah, I mean no, that's that's cool. fantastic, and that's awesome. So you know we're going to need to get get going, let you get going here soon, because I'm sure you have big things to do today. But um, you know, couple anecdotes, couple things that you've learned along the years, like uh, you know quotes. I mentioned one of them earlier, which I thought was you know really amazing. Uh, you know that was about. Um, that you're hired not for your capabilities, but for your accomplishments. Love that. I'll keep it. Um, anything else, like things that you've you've picked up that, you know, you live by now? Uh, get a financial education if you want to work in this industry. Right? Yep. In any um, industry. In any, any industry, but if you want to be in business, you better get a financial education one way or another. Um, you know, once again, surround yourself. Like you said this earlier. I'm really good at going, I'm not that good at this. Let me get the people who are better at it in line. So build teams, give them good, consistent, consistent direction, and loosely manage them and allow them, leave them alone, allow them to excel. Because that's a key to my success is instead of, you know, trying to build some kind of conscripted army, I try and build SEAL teams, you know where everybody's cross-trained and motivated and they know their roles, but they can step into other roles. And this has been a key to my, the last 10 years of my success. No, yeah. no doubt. Yeah. Um, anecdotally, you know, check all the small stuff, you know, um, make sure you have a vision about what it is and are demanding that your vision is there. Don't, Take counsel of your fears or your naysayers. I could go on for a while. There's a list of them nearby, by the way. Yeah, I um, love them. I love you know, them. avoid having your ego so close to your position that when your position falls, your ego goes with it, you know? <laughs> That's it ain't funny. as bad as you think. It'll look better in the morning. Sleep on it. Come yeah. back, you know? Yeah. But that applies to all kinds of communications at the end of a very stressful day. Just step back and go, hold on a minute now. Um... As someone once said to me, on a different level of emergency, is there blood? Have medical services been called? That's you know? funny. That's, That's hilarious. That's great. You know, you know. Let's 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 redefine. What do you mean? There's an emergency. You know. Yeah. That's hilarious. Did the 737 go in? Okay. That, well, this is so not an emergency. Funny. That's know? so funny. Well, yeah. I mean, we think Getting that. Perspective. We think, yeah, yeah perspective, sorry. exactly, because we think things are emergencies, but how about you make airplanes and your airplanes are killing people because of a software glitch? You know, that's an emergency. That's a real problem there. Uh, you know. Yeah, that's a real problem. And once again, don't ignore, once again, remember, a fireman runs to the fire. If you're in the position and doing the job I'm doing and you're not, you know, I'll, once again, anecdotally, one of my big customers in the car show industry, and you know who I'm talking about, Tall Redhead, right? Yeah. He yeah. looked at Christy Light's guys at the start of all of it and went, you know why I use this guy over here? He says, because when I call him at 1030 on a Saturday night, not only does he answer the phone, but he then sits down and figures out what the solution is. And, you know, I can depend on the fact that he's not 
working. He's not off the clock. You know, you got to be the the doctor on call, for lack of a better phrase. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're a hundred percent right. So got to la- be present. Lastly, Robert, and then we'll let you go unless Henry has something uh, burning here. But we always ask people on this podcast. You know, it is we like to talk about gear at the end of the day. And of course. So what's missing? What hasn't I'll been invented? I'll tell you what's missing. I'll, no, I'll tell you what's missing right now. It's been invented. It's been ignored. A hot shot discharge wash light. Hmm. Think about this. Okay, I got a question for you, and hopefully this won't extend us too far. How many studio callers got sold? Oh, uh, 38,000 of them, I believe. Okay, compared to pick a hard edge light, Okay. Mm-hmm. How many VL um, 3500 wash or wash FX lights got sold? How is it that a VL 3500 wash FX is still a viable thing for Huddleston to rent, what, 15 years later? Yeah. Everybody is too busy trying to overfeature the light. We could have a whole other conversation about the development of the bad boy because I was there with Nick and John LaBelle when it was suggested in a meeting in Rusty Bruchet's boardroom in Dallas. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I know that story from the beginning, but that's a light that was that the original idea was one thing. It became something else. I'm not saying what it became isn't great. I'm just saying that. Yeah. You know, they don't build military aircraft to do everything yeah. most of the time yeah you know um you can't and if if somebody were to pay attention i don't believe i mean i'd i would wish that the led engines were at a place where you could get the output um out of them that you know t- touches what a bmfl will do but i haven't seen it Okay, yeah, and yeah. I think we're several generations. So, how about a discharge wash light that's simple, that does what it needs to do, to do, and we could have a whole bunch of because, you know, think back to Parkins and Lecos. What was the ratio in a in, in a show in the conventional days? You know, right? Ten to one. Yeah, I mean, I just, I honestly, I I agree with your sentiment. I don't know that anyone is really going to invest much development time or money into a discharge based fixture at okay, this point. Okay, well find me an LED fixture to give me that kind of output. Yeah, I think that's where everyone's feet. headed. Yeah. I, I think that's where everyone's headed. And I think they're getting well, they're very, headed, very but they're close. not there. Yeah. You know, how yeah. long? Yeah. I mean, every all this stuff I'm seeing is fine to about forty five, maybe fifty five feet. Yeah. And then it just dies. Yeah. yeah. So here's a question for you. You're in an arena, right? What's the distance to hockey dasher to hockey dasher? Do you know? I don't remember. It's 88 feet. I should know. I okay. Nine, I was going to say 90, but okay. Okay. All right. So average trim of a raw, uh, of a big concert show these days is approaching 50 feet. Would we agree? Okay. So what's the hypotenuse of that triangle when you're shooting to the PA screamer stage left from the PA screamer stage right? It's about 95 feet, okay? There's your metric. Interesting. I wow. see. I get it. Okay. So, and I've been preaching this to manufacturers for about two and a half years now, right? Um, 
Uh, we need to do the next generation of stuff. It's my opinion that we need lights to have that kind of output. And right now, the field is fairly thin or non-existent in the LED stuff. I haven't seen it. Yeah, interesting. Well, I mean, you make an interesting point in that probably the most popular big touring light out there is still a discharge light, the BMFL. You know, there's physics to this, okay? You look at the LED light engines, right? And how big is, a, is one of those engines? Two and a half inches across? An inch and a half across? Yeah, I think they're 400 watts of the big guys right now, so there you go, right? I think so. But, but I mean, what is the, you know, the thousand watters, right? The stuff that, you know, everybody's saying is 800 to 1,000 watts of LED output. How big physically is the engine in diameter? Okay, let's suppose it's an inch and a half to two inches across. If you go back to the Sylvania Lighting Handbook, which, which was written in the 60s and 70s, it'll tell you that the perfect source of light for theater is a point source. Okay? That's why xenon, for many years, was the only follow spotlight lamp when the short arc discharge stuff had such a much bigger arc size, right? So you take all this and you say to yourself, how do you get... An inch and a half, two inches of diameter of LED engine condensed down through a condensing lens stream and then back out the other side and not lose all the energy. This goes back to the Icon M and why yeah, it right, kind of exactly. never, okay? It is currently, from what I've seen, it's not in the physics of the gear we have available to us at the source of the light available in LED. It's an, interesting, energy it's an interesting comment and um, certainly something that I think we should continue to discuss, you know. In Oh, uh, listen, I've been putting light meters on this stuff for a year now. Yeah. And we can talk about this offline all you want, but you asked, I mean, this is, okay, give me something that has that kind of energy, yeah. okay? Don't overfeature it. Don't make it cost so much money. It costs a million dollars to recover your cost of acquisition when you have to go buy, I mean, what's the average buy at Christie Lights, right? Yeah. I mean. Yeah, you're talking about a simple, pretty simple. basic uh, targeted fixture. And, you know, I mean, the other, the other question I think that manufacturers are going to ask is, okay, great, if we build that, how many can we sell? What's the market? And that's where the question comes into play because how many shows do you need a 100-foot trim? Or a hundred foot. Well, how many? Well, let's go. Okay, I know we talk, we started this broad this this podcast talking about, or right before we really got started talking about right. the fact that we don't see that many shows. Yeah. But go out there and look around, and then go look around at the the. Look, I'm doing a, a job that is a studio opening uh, of a major studio in this town this fall, and the designer said I absolutely must have. I think it was it started at 160. We're down to 110. BMFLs. I have to have that kind of output. Interesting. Yeah, no way to sub around it. Very this good is point. for a studio opening. Yeah. Okay? Um, so it's not just throw, it's output, period. And I mean, I also had another designer, famous guy who's very hot in the business, look at me and go, you know, I'd use the Mac 2K all day. It's a great wash light, the XP. but. It makes my designs look old, and I can't specify something that makes me look old and cheap. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. So it's it's what perception. I think, I think this is an opportunity for a company like 
um, not necessarily a, an elation or a Roby or uh, or even Verilite or whoever. I think it's more of a boutique thing. You know, this is a smaller but very, very, like, a you know, maybe Ayrton, um, not Coamar anymore because their ownership is is just not where it needs to be right now. And Claypacky's now owned by a big conglomerate. So, you know, to me, it's more of a boutique, like an SGM or a Ayrton where, you know, they can make it makes sense to a company like that to to produce and sell a thousand fixtures. Not twenty thousand or fifty thousand or whatever. They can. Well, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, we could a thousand. We we. It's hard to say what the market would be because everybody decided that they wanted a mousetrap that would do everything. Yeah. Right. You know, when you buy a sports car, and I know you're a car guy, you don't expect the trunk space of an SUV, do you? No, of course. Of course not. But you can sell a lot of sports cars if you if you have your marketing right. I mean, I don't think that any of those companies that well, build cars... At the same time, know, what's the hottest selling vehicle in the United States is the SUV. Because they do want it Correct. to do everything. They want to... Ford, Ford wanna... F-150, right? Well, no, an SUV <laughs> in particular. Yeah, probably the Ford F-150, which certainly is not something I'll be driving anytime soon. You know, you know what's parked <laughs> in my driveway? <laughs> It's an F-150 <laughs> Limited, yeah. though, so it's the comfy, real swaggy, uh, it's like yeah, a Range Rover. Yeah, because you're hauling race cars around and all that stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, I got to pull a trailer every once in a while, but I, I yeah, actually yeah, yeah. have really grown to like it. I mean, the problem is I've curbed problem. all four wheels, and I do it on every one I get because I'm so used to driving sports cars, and these things just tend to be bigger, and you can't see the end of it, you know? So it's Yeah, you know, I got, I got a pair of cars, and my big car is this... Um, uh, Mercedes-Benz kind of fastback SUV thing, AMG, yeah. uh, GLA, you know? Yeah. yeah. And um, you, it's got TV cameras everywhere. I'm all the time. I did it this morning before we got online. Uh, I'm all the time turning on the TV cameras when I'm pulling in parking lots. It's already been a little curbing of the two right wheels. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. You know, I, you know, I, <laughs> you know I, what I'm going to say. I'm so bad at curbing wheels. I'm just, you know, like I take my car to get an oil change, and they go, dude, what are you doing to your wheels? <laughs> I'm like, shut up and change my oil. You know, I don't need to hear it. What are you, my mother? So, so Robert, <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So Robert, anyway, so you know, just like maybe it doesn't have to just be a washlight, but don't put so much glass in it that we don't get any output. We need output. I agree with you. I I do agree with that. Like I I hate that we're trying to make one light do everything these days. You, you know. I think the Sharpie proved something. I think the BMFL proved something. You know, do one or two things, but do it really, really well. And there's a place for you on a show. You might not be that's 100% why, that's of the show. Why, that's why 360 companies have an inherent limitation. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, it makes sense. There, there's, a, so. there's somebody at the top end of that company that has a particular you know, orientation. I used to always say you're either visually oriented or, or auditorially oriented. You can't be both because one, one, if you try to be both, something's going to suffer, right? Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So, you know, anyway, edit out what you want and, um, you know, uh, thanks for your time this morning, man. I really appreciate it. So so one more thing, Robert, you've set up the podcast perfectly. Uh, we have Huntley on, uh, an upcoming podcast in September, right? So you set him up pretty good talking about Christie light standards. Uh, we appreciate it. Well, you oh, said, that'll be a so great you, podcast. You, It'll you be very interesting the to hear what. 
Yeah, well, you, you've also set it up really well in that you said really nice things about him. And so hopefully <laughs> he'll say really nice things in reverse. And uh, we'll tell us. So. Well, I, I think, you know, you were one of the guys that I think was, you know, very fundamental in his building the business to where it is today. I think you've added a, a lot to that business. So, no, it's Well, I really a- appreciate that. He's, you know, uh, unofficially, I, as I said before, I have great respect from a lot of people inside that company from yeah. day one and even more now. And, you know, they pay attention to things I ask about or point out, which is yeah. a lot better than some places. Trust me. That's a very good thing. Yep. That's a good thing. All right. Robert, thank you so much. We appreciate all your time this morning. And, uh, and you know, I think we should do this again one day because we didn't get into any of your funny stories that I'd love to get into. Well, yeah, there's a whole war story segment we could do for sure. And <laughs> yeah. there's also the last arc of it. We kind of, you know, kind of sped through. But there's also the book stuff. So let's get together before long. Absolutely. Thanks again for you uh, guys Thank having you. me on. We Thanks. appreciate it very much, sure. bud. All right, Robert. Bye, bye, dude. Thanks. Thank you. Sweet, sweet thing You never buy but you are